This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. you say you're about four or five pounds heavier since the last time we're together i can totally empathize my friend believe me all right uh a lot to get to i have to warn you though if you are in the mood for a radio talk show that is four hours of um cheering on blowing up terrorists and covering uh, the most gruesome images of crime and hostages and uh, fanning the flames of the most divisive political political rhetoric you can imagine this is not the show for you it doesn't mean we won't talk about uh, world affairs and political affairs but this is a show where if you're listening to us for the first time we talk about the full range of conversational Topics, Just like you might at the Thanksgiving table or the leftover table, it's not all war and politics. At least I hope it's not. There's a lot more to it than life. In fact, we try to, on occasion, give you things that may give you a little bit of a break from the dour news about violence and uh, everything else that you see uh, nationally, locally, internationally, and someone that has been uh, lifting people's spirits for many decades is America's favorite dentist turned comedian. He is a comedy writer, a stand-up comic, a host, an author, a producer, a director, and yes, a dentist. I'm very pleased to welcome back Jeffrey Gurian. Jeffrey, it's great to see you. It's great to see you too, Frank, and happy Thanksgiving to you and to all your listeners. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and a lot to be grateful for. Thank you. What did you end up doing for Thanksgiving? I went to see my kids. They they have a, a place upstate on a lake, a beautiful place, and I get to celebrate with them, their kids, my ex-wife, her husband, a big extended family. We all celebrate together. You know, it's you, wonderful. You've talked about this before, that you do spend a lot of holidays with your ex-wife. I think that's great that you're cordial. My cousin Andrea, her parents are divorced, and the last few Thanksgivings, they've been spending together. I think it's great when formerly divorced couples can do that. What's the trick? Because, you know, often divorce, there was a big article in the Times this weekend about how expensive it is, but even more so than the expense. So often you have two people that never thought they would be apart, that at one time were very much in love, really growing to hate one another. How do you get to a point where you see that a marriage isn't working out, but you are making the decision, especially if there are children involved, but even if they're not, where if there are children involved, that you guys are going to get along and be friendly? You know, it's such an interesting question. First of all, um, you can't get divorced unless you were married, right? Right. That's the progression. You had to get married first in order to be able to get divorced. (laughs) And nobody expected it to not last. You get married with the intention that it's going to last forever, hopefully. But not everybody is meant to be in your life forever. In my particular case, my ex-wife gave me the greatest gift that she could ever give me, my two daughters. Nobody else did that. Nobody else could do that. It had to be her genes, her X chromosomes, for those girls to be who they were. If I had been with somebody else, who knows? I might never have had children. 
to me, that was the most important thing. It's so meaningful to me. And I know you feel the same way. When I met Carmine, by the way, congratulations on his second birthday. Thank you. Thank you very much. And he shared his Thanksgiving, his Thanksgiving, his Halloween candy with me, which was so nice. But um, I respect my ex-wife so much for what she gave me that the fact that we grew apart, there was no hatred there. There was no animosity. And I think it's such a waste of time for people who hate each other, especially if you have children, because if you love your children, they wouldn't be those children if it wasn't for that other person. And yeah, I, I totally empathize. Obviously, you know, my wife and I are very happily married still. And, you know, God willing, it stays it. that way. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, there are times, well, first of all, I'm sure I push her buttons all the time. I, 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 I'm certain of it. But there are times when I am uh, tempted to uh, get upset with her, get irritated with her. And, you know, I just think how lucky I am that she gave me the, just such a, a wonderful boy who's just mm-hmm. uh, so perfect. So I totally get that. You know who's very friendly with his ex-wife? Uh, Uncle Floyd. Are you friendly with Uncle Floyd? I know him. I've met him a couple of times. I wouldn't say them very yeah, friendly. He had, him, but, um, yeah, he had some health issues recently. And the person that's been keeping me apprised of how he's doing health-wise is his ex-wife. I always think that's so great whenever that well, can happen. We had our big dinner at my ex-wife's house in the country. They all have houses around this lake, and it's really beautiful. And there must have been about 30, 35 people there. And I brought my significant other, and they get along great. That's wonderful. You know, everybody, everybody is happy. And, it, you know, there are certain spiritual principles, and I always bring that up, that I try to lead my life by. I've been trying to do that for the last 30 years or so. I'm a student of esoteric wisdom and spirituality, and there are certain principles, and if you can incorporate them into your life, things work out nicely. There's a lot of healing that occurs. There's always pain when people break up. It's one of the worst things that you can go through. But in retrospect, I see the reason for it. She adopted two other children and had another child of her own. Wow. That, that daughter recently had a baby. None of that could have happened had I been there still. I think that's uh, it's great that you see the long view uh, about all that sort of thing. And uh, it's part of what makes you you and why I love your enthusiastic energy so much. By the way, um, for anybody that wants to know the story of Jeffrey's metamorphosis from dentist to stand-up impresario to something of a comedy legend, certainly a comedy authority, there's a very, very uh, well-done short documentary on the YouTube titled Who the F is Jeffrey Gurian? And uh, that 14 minutes will open your eyes. G-U-R-I-A-N. We've talked about it a lot before. But uh, Jeffrey, I did want to take advantage of your dentistry expertise before we talk about some other things that you're up to and uh, and other things. I ran into my sister, obviously, for the holidays. We were together on Friday, and then she came to Carmine's birthday on Saturday. She was over the moon about some news that she got a few days ago from her dentist. I want to play you. I asked her to record a voicemail because this was the (laughs) primary topic of conversation in our family over the last 72 hours. Uh I want to play you what she said, and then I want you to verify if this is as rare as she claims. There's my sister, Claudia. Okay. Hey, Frankie. Um, As you know, I went to the dentist right after Thanksgiving, got some crazy news (laughs) at this office. Um, I don't have any tips for anyone because I think this is just something you're born with. Um, but I will say, you know, 
has really impacted my day-to-day since learning this, changed how I view the world, changed how I, how I interact with people, knowing that I'm a one percenter and they're probably not. So overall positive experience. Um, no tips except just hope that you're born with it. And um, definitely I feel has gone to my head immediately. So maybe that's a bad thing. Who knows? So she says or her dentist told her she's a one percenter. Apparently she not only has never had a, had a cavity, but she has all four of her wisdom teeth and never had any of them removed. And she has never had braces. And according to her dentist, that puts her teeth in the top 1% of teeth that he's ever seen. Is it really that rare? Yeah, it's very rare. But I, I couldn't get, I was. I, I kept wondering, what is she going to yeah, say? So did what did he tell her? She gonna, never said yeah, what yeah. it was I guess that she he told her. Me to set it she up. was I so excited. To the voice she, before. she was so excited. She never said what it was. Yes, it is very rare. But if she's a younger person, I assume maybe she's in her 30s. Uh, yeah, around there. So yeah. things change. Years ago, they didn't know how sugar would affect your teeth. These days, a lot more people are growing up without cavities because they're more aware of how to take care of your teeth, how to brush and floss. Years ago, people didn't, they just thought that that as you got older, it was normal to lose your teeth. And I came from, I'm still wearing my badge. I came from the Greater New York Dental Convention. I love it. I was there today. I still stay in touch because uh, there's a magazine called Dentistry Today, and the editor this guy, Paul Feuerstein, he wants to do a story about me. And so the dean of Temple University invited me to this thing that they were having. It's at the Javits Center. It goes on every year after Thanksgiving, the biggest dental convention in the world. And so I went. It's, it's, it's so huge. It's unbelievable. You get to see all the new products and all. And I presented there at one time talking about headaches coming from TMJ. And I just want to mention that briefly, if any of your listeners wake up in the morning and their neck hurts, the last person in the world they would think to tell that their neck hurts would be their dentist, right? right? Why would you ever tell your dentist that your neck hurts? So they take the information available to them and make an excuse that makes sense to them. So most people say, oh, my pillow is no good. My mattress is no good. I slept in a funny position. But because of stress, people clench and grind their teeth. And the muscles from your jaw actually connect into your neck in the trapezius area. They go into the temple region, which can cause headaches. You know, a lot of people feel, a lot of people get headaches in the frontal area. Some people get headaches behind their head in the occipital area, that bone near your ear in the back and from the shoulders. So if you wake up in the morning and your neck hurts, ask your dentist to see if you're grinding your teeth because people think they have migraine headaches and it's really coming from their jaw. That is really interesting. Um, but I think my sister only wants to socialize with other one percenters now. It's um, going to be hard to find friends. Yeah, no, so she yeah. only wants to socialize and I think only date people that are similarly tooth situated. So if you know of other one percenters that you can steer her away, over. please I'll do that. Over. I thought of you uh, today, because you're in your 60s, right? I could say that. Almost, way, I, almost. I think, uh, no one knows my age uh, and no, I don't even either. own it. And I'll tell you why. Not to be a jerk, 
But as soon as you own an age, you're responsible for that I, number. I, I, right? I'm with you. And yeah. there's a reason for my asking, because I, if I were to guess, I would say maybe around 60. And I just be given given your body of work and some of the people that you've worked with. Uh, I read a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend by Rob Lezebnik. The headline was How to Avoid Being Boring at 60. And it's a wonderful essay about what people can do when their life is so routine that they've run out of stories. And this writer profiles a number of people who are leading really exciting lives around the age of 60. And Rob suggests embarking on a series of tame, achievable, and eye-opening challenges. What do you have? Give people a pro tip to if there's many things people could say about you, you're not boring. <laughs> How do you avoid being boring at 60 or at any age, really? Look, I feel like a kid. And I, I, I've heard people say that before, but I really do. If you came to my place, it's filled with balloons and crayons and toys. And my kids don't live with me. Those things are for me. My inner child is my best friend. Uh, all my friends are in their 30s and 40s. In the comedy world, most people are very young, and that's who I'm surrounded by. And so it's just natural for me to have that kind of energy. I run in the street. I, I, I'm in the gym a few times a week. I have a million interests. Um, so I don't feel bored. And I used to tell my mom, there must be something that you like to do you should look on the internet and find something, whether it's a book club, anything. Um, it's terrible for people who don't have interests, mm. who just stay home and watch TV all day or listen to the radio. And I love the radio, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But, there are people, but there are people who don't have a lot of interests. And I think it's very important to find something that you love. To me, I, my goal has always been to put positive energy out to the universe, whether I've made people beautiful as a cosmetic dentist or make them laugh in the comedy world. By the um, way, I really give you a lot of credit for, even though you're very accomplished in the world of comedy, keeping a, uh, staying involved in the world of dentistry. It almost reminds me of Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, here's a guy that achieved a lot of success in fields outside of bodybuilding, um, acting, real estate, uh, politics, obviously. And yet he still is very involved in the sport of, of bodybuilding. He doesn't forget about the place that he came from. So I, I, I kind I I have, I have a funny story about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I actually wrote jokes for Arnold really? Schwarzenegger. And before he was even famous, I used to read these bodybuilding magazines, and his name struck me. It's such an odd name, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I used to say to my girlfriend, who became my wife, please don't let this guy ever insult you because I don't want to have to fight with him. <laughs> and so I went to Saturday Night Live when the show was new, and in those days they had assigned seats. I show up. And who's sitting in my seat? Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and I have to ask him to move. <laughs> and I'm there with this girl. And I said to him, I'm sorry, but you're in my seat. And he was so kind. He said, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. And, and he, he moved his seat. We exchanged information. And I wound up writing jokes for him for the Mike Douglas show. Oh. He, was, he was promoting the movie Pumping Iron at the time. Oh, boy. His first movie. That's how long ago it was. And I recently found a letter from him. I think it was on Golden Oak Productions. In the documentary that you mentioned that sure. they did about me, 
I mentioned that letter from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I had forgotten he was, that. He was so nice. Uh, that, I Such had forgotten nice that. But you know, of all people to be in my seat, can you imagine I, having I, to ask him to move? Yeah, no, I wouldn't <laughs> poke him in the ribs at, uh, at any age, you know. Yeah. Uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus was profiled also in the Wall Street Journal magazine this weekend, uh, basically saying that uh, laughter is the best medicine. And a lot of people are always saying that where there's laughter, there's usually pain. Julia Louis-Dreyfus says in this article, essentially, that the reverse is also true. And she's launched this new podcast where she focuses on the role of humor in healing. It sounds like you would agree with her completely on that. There's one. no question about it. I'm on the board of this group called LaughMD that started in California. This fellow, Frank Chindamo, created this. And it, it brings comedy to hospitals. Mm. I was also involved with uh, Comedy Cures. I performed at Sloan Kettering for cancer patients. They actually wheeled people out on IVs and we made them laugh because when people are sick, other people tend to withdraw from them because it's awkward. You, you don't know what to say, especially when someone is very ill. And laughter is incredible because it releases endorphins, which is the pleasure chemical. That's great. And, and it helps you get better. So th it's not just the saying that laughter is the best medicine. It's really true. Uh, Jeffrey Gurian is my guest. If you uh, want to call in and chat with us about anything that we're talking about, you can give me a call at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. He is an author. He is a, a very funny person. If you want to learn more about him, what he's doing, you can go to ComedyMattersTV.com. We may chat about some of his books later, but if you want to check out any of his books, you can just go to Amazon and type Gurian, G-U-R-I-A-N. A lot of these books um, make a wonderful Christmas or Hanukkah gift for people. There's even a book specifically about holidays, which is a lot of fun, but it's also very informative. Uh, Jeffrey, what are you doing in Vermont uh, this week? Uh, thanks for asking. I'm very excited about this. I'm going up to the Vermont Comedy Festival. These two young comics, uh, Colin Doyle and Matt Vita, started this festival, which is a very ambitious thing to do. I've produced shows, but to produce an entire festival is really incredible. 50 comedians are coming. I'm the official interviewer because I've been doing that for 30 years. I, 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 I interviewed on the red carpet at the Just for Laughs Festival every year probably since 1992, the biggest comedy festival in the world. And I've done many other fests. And these young guys contacted me. So I'm the official interviewer. I'll be, per I'll be performing at the festival. I'm doing a book signing there for my oh. book uh, with Chris Rock uh, called Make Him Laugh. And also Man Robs Bank with His Chin. And uh, it's going to be amazing. And it's this Thursday from November 30th to December the 3rd. And in the past, when I've talked about shows, some of your listeners have showed up. So anybody who's in Vermont, come and say well, well, hi. We do have some listeners in, um, in, in that part of the country, no doubt about it. Now, you talk about the difference and the difficulty in putting on a comedy festival versus a comedy show. For the people that don't know about the comedy business, what is a comedy festival? What is that versus just a regular comedy show? It's several nights of entertainment. Usually there's some daytime programming as well. I may be doing a, a presentation, a keynote presentation in the afternoon for people because you have to give them something to do during the day also. But at night, there are usually several venues and each one of them has a show and you have to coordinate a schedule and then you have to book comedians on each of those shows, which is a tremendous thing to do. It's hard enough to book comedians on one show. You know, most shows are like 90 minutes to two hours mm. max. 
And a festival has several shows a day. And this particular festival is going for four days. And they asked if I could help them arrange for a big star to come. And I called my buddy Colin Quinn, and he's the headliner of the festival. Wonderful. So it's going to be an amazing show. Um, they have this uh, Woolen Mill Comedy Club that holds about 400 people. And Colin will be performing there on Saturday night, December 2nd. And I hope these guys are listening right now. I don't know. I told hey, them uh, that we're going to be talking about No, that's show. great. Well, and uh, our friend Obi Murray, who's a regular guest on this show and a big listener, he's uh, up there in Vermont, so maybe he'll come. That'll and, be great. Um, Vermont apparently seceded from New York State in 1777. As I understand it, it's the only successful secession from New York State. I know you've not been up there yet. I haven't either, but... Based on what you know, do you think Vermont would have been better off remaining a part of New York State, or did they do the right thing by seceding? I think they did the right thing. Isn't their motto, live free or die? No, I think that's New Hampshire. Oh, is it New Hampshire? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I knew one of those places has that. They like living uh, free. up. There. It's close, though. I just looked it up. Vermont's motto is freedom and unity. Freedom and unity. I like it. Which is and ironic look, for a state that chose to secede from New York State. They weren't really practicing much in the way of unity then. They were busy listen, seceding. I think they've, they had a foreshadow. They, they had knowledge. Let's say that. I can't even think. I'm losing my facility for the language. They must have known what was happening to New York years ago. They had an idea that it would be a good idea to secede. They were actually part of New York at one time? Yeah, up until 1777, yeah. I didn't know, because it's a five-hour trip. I, well, maybe they made the right decision by seceding. Do you know that I packed already? Uh, That's uh, how sick I am. Yeah. I have to pack in advance. So I, I pack six minutes before my car is picking me you up really? to the airport. That's when well, I pack. You are my idol. No, I, well, I literally, my ADHD kicks my butt, and I have to pack. When I went to Japan, I started packing two weeks before I open a suitcase oh and I start putting things in as I think of them because the thought of getting somewhere and not having something I need is frightening to me. If my wife ever does divorce me, it will be over something packing related. <laughs> really? That's where we're that's where we're at. She's more like you. All right, uh, Jeffrey Gurian is my guest. Uh, check him out comedymatterstv.com. Uh, that's uh, comedymatterstv.com. Uh, you can also check out some of his books on on Amazon 800-848-9222 this is the other side of midnight straight ahead the other side of midnight with frank morano you need parts o'reilly auto parts has parts need them fast we've got fast no matter what you need we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it product availability just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight, I'm Frank Morano. In the world of radio, this uh, is largely known as Jeffrey Gurian's theme song. Uh, if you're just tuning in, Jeffrey Gurian is a comedy writer, a stand-up comic, a host, an author, a producer, a director, and yes, a dentist. And it was uh, Ron Bennington that, that gave you this uh, theme song? Yes, exactly. Well, I was a regular on his show for a couple of years, and I would bring on special guests who were friends of mine like Trevor Noah and D.L. Hughley and Colin Quinn and Artie Lang. And, uh, more than 50 guests I brought on. And every and I would jump around to all the comedy clubs seeing everybody perform. And that's how I got that as my theme song. I love it. I love it. Hey, we were chatting before the show about uh, a couple of bold-faced comedic names. And uh, I mentioned one person, another person. And uh, you mentioned a couple times, oh, I used to party with them back at this location or in that era. You you don't drink, right? No. And you have you ever been a drinker a long time ago a long time ago but, but very mildly so in the in the gurian context what is partying you're not doing drugs you're not drinking uh what are you doing what's partying in jeffrey gurian uh, world meeting a lot of people and going to all fun places there you go you know my my father was a liquor salesman and never drank my grandfather owned a nightclub and it's funny and never drank <laughs> And so I never got it. I never was into sports. My dad wasn't into sports. I, I don't do things that most people do for some reason. I can't imagine so. that. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> 800-848-9222. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. Greetings, Jeffrey. Uh, Jeffrey, you're my favorite guest on Frank's show. That's so uh, nice. Thank you. It, it, it just, just joyful. It's just spectacular. I wanted to ask you, you've mentioned in the past that, of course, you, you were a, a dentist. Mm -hmm. And then you were writing jokes, I guess, and started to get into comedy. So when did you make that transition? And, and how did you decide to maybe uh, give up dentistry or pursue comedy in a more major way? And did you end up taking a pay cut? Well, I was doing both for many years. I never did just one until recently. I was While I was in practice, I was writing for you know Joan Rivers and Rodney Dangerfield and uh, Jerry Lewis and all these people for the Friars Roast. So I was actually doing both at the same time. Um, and then when I, I, I taught at NYU for 12 years, and when I did the book with Chris Rock on the history of the comic strip, that's kind of when I left dentistry per se and just did comedy. And um, what was the rest of your question? <laughs> did you take a pay cut? Oh, did I take a pay cut? Somewhat of a pay cut. Somewhat of a pay cut. But you know what? Every every dollar that I make doing comedy, when you're doing something that you really love, and I loved being a dentist, by the way, which is why I still go to the conventions mm -hmm. and I still stay in touch with it. Like I lecture on what I mentioned before on TMJ problems and how they can cause physical body pain from stress. I do lectures on that stuff. I don't practice anymore. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I still stay connected to it because I really loved what I did. Yeah, great question, uh, Igor. Thank you. 
you know, we're talking about uh, alcohol and drugs. I would imagine that when you're in comedy and you're going to, well, maybe not you because you also had a day job for a lot of the time that you right. were doing this, but for a lot of people that linger around a comedy club or a, a nightclub the whole evening waiting for their set to start, there's a lot of uh, temptation to get involved in heavy drinking, to get involved in uh, things like drugs. Do you see that more in comedy than in other aspects of entertainment? Is there is there a culture that's conducive to doing things like uh, being the opposite of sober? I think you see it a lot in the entertainment business just because it's a very weird thing to get up in front of people and entertain them, mm -hmm. and especially in comedy. It's the hardest thing in the world to get up in front of total strangers and try to convince them that what you think is funny is actually funny. But what people usually find out is that like, when you're drunk, everything is funny. <laughs> and then the next day, when you think about it, it's like, it's not that funny. You know, people like a lot of comics have gotten sober. There's a big sobriety community in the comedy world. And a lot of the comics who used to go on stage, they'd need a couple of drinks first to get the courage to go up because it's really hard to do oh, stand up no comedy. About it. Sure. We make it look easy because when you go, even if you're nervous inside, you project confidence. And in, uh, in my particular case, that came from me conquering stuttering. Because in order to conquer stuttering, you have to have supreme confidence. You have to feel good about yourself. You have to have good self-esteem. And I worked for many years to get that. So even if you're nervous inside, you're projecting confidence. Well, no, that's uh, probably an important skill for people in every aspect of life to, uh, to try to hone. But show business is all about ego. And when, when everything you do is ego-driven, sometimes you need a boost from alcohol and drugs. And sobriety is about creating a balance, you know, detaching from ego. Uh, being a, a worker among workers, as mm -hmm. I say, I do a lot of work with 12-step programs. So I understand the power of them. They're very powerful spiritual programs. And they teach you certain principles. They're based on ancient spiritual principles, like I mentioned, about doing the next right thing. That's all. Um, tell me about this short film that you're in, that you're in now, A Walk in the Park. Oh, what is this? Very exciting. I, there's a girl, uh, Noelle Leon. She's uh, a stand-up comedian from L.A. She's a Playboy model. She's a filmmaker. She's got just about a million followers on Instagram, which to me is an amazing thing. Oh, sure. And she contacted me and she asked if I would star in this film that, that she created called A Walk in the Park, a very Woody Allen-ish kind of film, a short film, black and white. And she sent me the script and I'm like, yes, I will definitely do it because I have a very strong connection to Woody. Woody, when I was still in dental school, Woody Allen read my earliest material. Mm. It's a story that I've told, but I got to sit with him for an hour and he looked over all my stuff and he said to me, your comedy is very visual and you should really think of making a film out of it. Many years later, I wrote a film called I Am Woody about a violent mob boss who's obsessed with Woody Allen. <laughs> and I, I had uh, uh, Johnny Sack from The Sopranos. Oh, terrific. Vince Caratola yeah. was in it, played a doctor, Victor Argo, the late Victor Argo, who was a great actor who unfortunately passed away, was one of the stars in it. And um, so this guy, this violent mob boss, he survives a mob hit. He comes out of it with amnesia. 
And now he really thinks he's Woody Allen, but he's six foot five and 300 pounds. He's a huge Woody Allen, and he becomes afraid of his own men. He thinks he's small and thin, so he won't go to a sit-down. <laughs> they have to tell him it's not a sit-down. It's, it's a party to raise money for your new movie. He goes, and don't be surprised if they call you Big Frank. And he goes, why would they call me Big Frank if my name is Woody? And he talks like Woody Allen, and he wears the bucket hat like Woody Allen. And it won festivals. So when she asked me to star in this movie, I said, absolutely. And we've been shooting it. We shot it in Central Park. And it's in post-production right now. And so I got to write table? some of When do you line. think people will uh, be able to see it? Uh, I'd say in the next month or two. Oh, great. All and right. She's making it to enter into festivals. Oh, great. Well, you got to keep so us posted I'm very on excited that. about it. That's great. Very excited. Uh, uh, speaking of, uh, and, and you talk about a guy with a busy calendar, the only person that might be busier than you is uh, the owner of our network, John Katsimatidis. I understand you were in the same I, I place that uh, John was in on yeah. Tuesday. Where were you? At Carnegie Hall. And you must have I, done a lot of practicing. I got yeah, right. I got invited, and it was it was a very special evening. I'm so glad that I went. John was the recipient. I want to say it correctly. I kept my my ticket. It says um, he received the Global Leadership Award, the Maurice R. Greenberg. They called him Hank Greenberg. I think was his nickname. Mm -hmm. Of uh, I think he he owned AIG, some billion dollar company, and John Katsimatidis won this award. Global Leadership Award, and he was there with Margot and his Wonderful. daughter Andrea. You know, AJ Cash sure. she goes by on Instagram. That's great. And yeah, I posted something afterward. I shot video of it. He gave a great speech about how if you work hard in this country, you can achieve. And he certainly did. He started with one grocery store, I think. And it, it, no, I mean, you talk about the definition of the American dream. It's uh, it's it's what John has done with his life, and I I really enjoy what he's pushing for now, trying to bring a panda to New York City. I think oh, it'd yeah. be a great thing. Two pandas for tourism. Think, right? Pandas, yeah. yes, yeah. that would be a great thing for tourism and for sort of morale. Uh, I think people would really enjoy that. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Chris is in the Catskills. What's on your mind, Chris? Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Morning. Jeffrey, uh, I saw that the festival online, it's in Woodstock, Vermont. What uh, times and nights of the festival are you performing stand-up? And uh, I, uh, the Woodstock, New York, has a pretty good film festival that's been going on for a little over 20 years. And I know they have a Woodstock Writers Festival in Woodstock, New York. Maybe that's something that you could get with some people to try and put that together. And real quick on dentistry, I saw something on television uh, this morning about uh, the Mayans were using, in 600 AD, were using oyster, shell, uh, oyster shells as dental implants, wow. and they were stronger than the implants today. Because at an oyster shell, a drill bit uh, can't go through them. That's amazing. I, I, I'm, I'm totally. I love stories like that. Same. Like, like ancient history, and they were doing surgery in the in those days too. Like years ago, there. You know, uh, have you ever watched Ancient Aliens? Sure, all the time. I love okay, it. Okay, I love Ancient Aliens, and I truly believe that there's no way that human beings lifted stones that were a hundred thousand pounds and built the pyramids. It had to be like some some extraterrestrial force that taught them how to do that or that did it for them. Uh, so 
I'm very excited to go to Vermont. Uh, do you know uh, if people do want to get tickets and see you? I think you I'm kn- going to be in a show Friday night. They're still working on the schedule, believe it or not. That's gotcha. how hard it is. They haven't told me exactly when, but Thursday night is the welcoming thing. So gotcha. Friday night, I'm assuming right. that I'll be performing Friday night. All right. Well, Carlin is in Vermont. Maybe he's got some answers for us. Hello, Carlin. Hey, Frank, Jeffrey, how you guys doing? Is that Hanging Colin Doyle? Oh, Colin, excuse yes. me. Hey, Colin, how are you? <laughs> He's Good, one of the guys that I was mentioning. Outstanding, great. He's well, producing the festival. We'll, we'll send him a yeah, bill for the commercial. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys so much for talking about it. It's great. Yeah, so, uh, what, what, you know, according to Jeffrey, you got to be insane to do something like this, Colin. What, what, what's the matter <laughs> with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, if you knew anything about me and my uh, business partner, Matt Vita, I think that's a pretty fair description of us. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, it's coming together great. We have over 60 comedians coming in from all around the country uh, to Vermont and uh, with over 20 shows uh, in the four days. So um, like Jeffrey mentioned, Woolen Mill Comedy Clubs are a brick and mortar venue here in Vermont. We're one of two comedy clubs um, in the state that uh, offers uh, uh, comedy you know, regularly. So we're very excited to have shows there. We have shows, three shows a night, 8, 10, midnight as well as the big marquee show with Colin Quinn and uh, shows at Long Trail Brewery and still on the mountain in Killington. So, well, it's great. Really well, well four good luck. Four towns. Uh, so, Colin, yeah. if people want tickets or more information, is there a website you can direct people to? Yeah, so if you go to vermontcomedyfestival.com, uh, you can see the full uh, programming there as well as tickets to purchase. And uh, like Jeffrey said, he's going to be on the red carpet doing some some interviews as well as performing. So it's a lot of fun. It's, it's four days. So uh, if you can come to Vermont, we uh, recommend staying at Terrific. on the River Inn. Terrific. And, I'm, uh, I'm eager to yeah. see if the, the maple syrup is all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> uh, thank you, Colin. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, thanks, Frank. See yeah. you soon, Colin. Take care, man. 800-848-9222. Uh, just go, going back to dentistry for a second, mm-hmm. the Pope, who I think is a pretty funny guy in his own right. I think he's actually, I don't know if he's performed stand-up, but he's been involved in comedy prior the, to... The Pope? As I, as I understand it, you I know believe what? he I, I used to wonder, how do you take the Pope to a party and introduce him to people without sounding like a name dropper? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that would be so weird to like bring the Pope and... What do you say to people, right? It's true. But anyway, uh, he's apparently uh, he was battling the flu or something this week, and uh, he had to do his blessing via video rather than mm-hmm. in person. But one of the things that he said was that he uh, w- has lamented, and the Vatican in general, they've lamented the loss of the family doctor. And I hear this from a lot of patients and a lot of doctors and people in general, that they miss the time when you could go to a family doctor, not go to a corporation. And mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering, was dentistry like that? And is it still like that? Did people go to a, a family dentist? Because my dentist is basically works for a bigger network of dentists. Has the same thing that happened to the family doctor happened to the family dentist? Yes, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I don't think there ever was like door-to-door dentistry. But I remember that they were actually house calls. Doctors, when I was a kid, doctors would come to your house and give you an injection. Well, I, I think that's kind of what the Pope is talking about. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when doctors would do that. But today, first of all, with crime, I don't think doctors would feel safe going to people's homes anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's a thing of the past, unfortunately. The whole world was different. It was a much kinder place. I grew up in the Bronx, 
when the Bronx was a really nice place to live. People left their doors open and doctors would come to your house. Nobody was afraid of getting mugged or robbed or having something happen to them. You know, uh, I do wonder. And I think that's certainly true in a lot of neighborhoods, especially in the Bronx. But I do wonder how much of this is. Uh, media and greater awareness that that crime is taking place that maybe wasn't there 30, 40, 50 years ago. Because if you look at the crime statistics, you know, crime was worse 30 years ago in our area. But um, I, I think people feel like it's worse now, if that makes sense. But I hear what you're saying, and uh, I, I'm sure there are other factors as, as well. But there is corporate dentistry. Mm-hmm. There is groups that own many, many offices. When I first got out of school, I worked for a guy that owned about five Medicaid offices. I started in Medicaid because that was a great way to get experience. Because when you first get out of school, you really don't know that much. You know, you only get, you learn by doing. And so I worked in the South Bronx for two and a half years with the most wonderful people. And I treated them as if they were private patients. Mm. They got work for free. When I went into my own practice, a lot of them actually wanted to follow me. They said, we'll pay. We want to pay to stay your patients. You know, I, I had a wonderful experience that's great. there. That's, that's terrific. 800-848-9222. We'll get back to your calls in uh, just a second. You know, we, we've talked about a lot of the great stand-ups that you've worked with, uh, that you've worked with and written for uh, people like Joan Rivers and Rodney Dangerfield. It strikes me if you look at the list of the greatest living stand-ups, it reads like a who's who of famous dead people, right? Yeah. If you were to pick, um, you know, it might be an unfair question, but if you were to pick right now, who do you think is the greatest living stand-up comic? Oh, geez, that's such a hard question. Because the, every comic has their own style. You know, it's like, and I'm friends with all these young guys that are just killing that. You know, Andrew Schultz, Mark Norman, they're, you know, the, Chris Stefano. I was just with Chris Stefano from Staten Island, mm-hmm. one of your boys, right? On a Friday night, he sold out Radio City Music Hall. The very next night, he sold out the theater at Madison Square Garden. That's never been done before. That's funny. These I, guys I, are I, huge. I heard him on another radio show. I didn't know he was from um, from Staten, Staten Island, Island yeah. but I heard him on another radio show. That was the first that I'd heard him. I thought he was terrific. I thought he was hysterical. Oh, he's, he's made a new fan in me. He's great, and he and Sal Volcano do a podcast on the No Pressure Network, No Pressure, which is a funny name, and- I will be a guest on there very soon. I'll look forward uh, to hearing yes, that. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Jeffrey Gurian is here. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. This is the end. We have some uh, dental related stories since we have a quasi dental theme today, beginning with my sister's perfect teeth. Uh, we are going to begin with some or continue with some dental related stories from Jeffrey's incredible book, Man Robs Bank with His Chin, which apparently there will be a book signing for at the uh, Vermont Comedy Festival this week. A whole lot more to get to and only 10 minutes to do it straight ahead the other side of midnight join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4xe or summit 4xe 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano my very special guest for the hour has been jeffrey gurian comedy writer stand-up comic and author you can check out his book on amazon his books uh just uh, search his last name g-u-r-i-a-n jeffrey i think uh one of the books that uh, clearly resonates with people even a long time after it was originally published is your book man robs bank with his chin and uh, other stories that are missed by missed the by mainstream, mainstream media, media yes. oddly enough, because they're incredible stories, almost too uh, too amazing to believe. I understand uh, you were in demand at the Greater New York Dental Convention over the weekend at the Javits Center for a lot of the dental-related stories in this book. Give us one or two. Okay, well, I just want to say first, the forward to the book was written by the guy who created The Onion, Scott Dickers, and... I was the writer for the Weekly World News. If you remember the Weekly World News, I I had my own column called Gurian's World of the Bazaar because they said the stories that I found were so unusual that I had to have my own column. Incredible. And I wanted to say, you know, as smart as Carmine is, and I was very impressed with his intelligence, there's a story here that I have 10-month-old infant accepted to college. You're kidding. In Connecticut. In Kentucky, 10-month-old, when he was born, he spoke fluently from the time he was born. He actually thanked his parents as he was born for, for having him and that, thanked the doctor for delivering him. It's amazing. Spoke in perfect, in perfect English. Amazing. Unbelievable. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I'm, I'm losing my facility for the language. His teachers at college say that they don't mind stopping the class every once in a while to change his diaper because he's so smart. And every once in a while, he has to stop to have a bottle. But they don't care no, because it's a, a so ten, bright. 10 months old to be in college. That's incredible. Unbelievable. That is some so, story. At the dental convention, I, t- I showed them the book, Dentist Accidentally Extracts Man's Face. Oh, my. Which is an unbelievable thing. I can't that's imagine why, what that does for liability insurance. Well, de- I was just going to say, that's why dentists have to have so much liability insurance. This man's face was so swollen. He had a bad tooth. Tried to take it out himself with a wrench. He lived on a farm, and where where is he from? Len Wheaton in North Dakota. Oh, jeez. Winds up with a toothache. Tries to take it out himself with a wrench. Couldn't get it out. Has to go to the dentist. Face was so swollen that his face actually became loose. 
and when they extracted the tooth, his face came oh, with it. The what dentist, a nightmare. The dentist tried to cement his face back on, but it didn't go on straight. And now he's suing for loss of face. Oh, my God. Uh, well, he says he has to smile from somewhere under his chin. You got to keep us posted on how that uh, that story how that turns works out. out. And the other story was dentists are advising the elderly to squeeze their food because a lot of elderly people they have a hard time. Their teeth are worn down or their dentures mm. don't fit properly. Right, makes sense. It affects their digestion, Frank. And so what dentists are advising is for them to start with with something easy like a tuna sandwich and squeeze it in your squeeze hand. It. Squeeze it tight. Squeeze it up good and. That would make it much easier to chew and much better for their digestion. Do you subscribe to this? The squeezing pro- it, it, before it, chewing? It makes sense. It does. I, I tried it myself, and it seems to work. I would think it's a little messy, though. It's a little messy, but you know what? I did the too much tuna thing with Nick Kroll and John <laughs> Mulaney, and that's what got me into that. You know? It's interesting. Uh, I, you know, I had some egg salad over the weekend. I would have started by squeezing, squeezing that. Squeezing it. 800-848-9222. Lisa is in Connecticut. You're on with Jeffrey Gurian. Well, let's lighten the mood a little bit. I have a joke for you. Um, what do you call it when chickens want to go to di- to the dance party? I give up. I have no idea. It's a foul ball. Oh, <laughs> all right. All right. Um, Lisa, I'll get you Jeffrey's number. You may need to hire a writer. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. 800-848-9222. Joe is in the Queens. Hi, Joe. Yeah, Jeffrey. Would you say, like, just say anybody on this set of, say, Steinfeld or uh, even Gilligan's Island, because they're around that type of uh, writing, could potentially do some stand-up? Not only, say, a Jerry Steinfeld, but say anybody that's on a regular on a set like that. Would that be a good prep for that, or you'd still have to be inclined? Well, you know what? Not all actors can do stand-up. You know, stand-ups can act very often, but not all actors can do stand-up. Stand-up is a very, very separate thing, and you really have to be so inclined. Um, so, uh, again, in answer to your question, stand-ups make better actors than hmm. actors doing stand-up. Interesting question, Joe. Thanks. Meyer is here in New York. Hi, Meyer. Hello? Meyer, are you there? All right, lost Meyer. Uh, Michael is on the east side. Hi, Michael. Okay, a couple of quick thoughts. One, uh, you were talking about TMJ. I have a problem once a week. It's in my. It uh, relates to the temple. Why do rabbis have to make twenty-minute speeches and then they don't even say kiddush to follow? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> And what's one the next one? Boy, a friend of mine, a friend of mine went for implants. He was a very successful financial guy. And he said, I'm going to treat myself. I'm taking care of my family all the time. He had his whole mouth done with implants. The bill comes. And a week later, his finances just went down to the toilet. He couldn't pay the bill. The dentist sued him. He felt bad. He said, but I got to sue you to protect myself. Okay. He sued him. So went to court and the judge said, you owe him $400,000. I don't have it, judge. So the judge said, okay, look. Five seconds, Michael. Five seconds. Got to wrap it up. And indentured 
service. Oh, not worth that. <laughs> Jeffrey, thank you as always. ComedyMattersTV.com. Always great to be with you. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. So I'm sure by now a lot of you have heard this story. It's a a sad story if it's being accurately reported. And for the purposes of this discussion, I will assume it's being accurately reported. Students at a high school in Queens, New York, uh, reportedly stormed the hallways after learning a teacher attended a pro-Israel protest on Monday. According to the New York Police Department, school safety agents at Hillcrest High School in Queens requested the response of the school sergeant in regard to a disorderly group of students inside of the location. When the sergeant responded, the students reportedly dispersed. I think, for starters, that explains why we need more school safety agents. But the New York Post reported Saturday that this disturbance began over what students referred to as a protest that was already planned due to a teacher's Facebook profile photo that showed her at a pro-Israel rally last month holding a poster that said, I stand with Israel. So the only reason that any students knew that this teacher was pro-Israel and you know then carried on in the manner that they did was because the teacher posted that on social media. Now, obviously, there's no excuse for terrorizing a teacher under any circumstances. But it got me thinking, because I was listening to a caller to my friend Dominic Carter's radio show last night, who was a teacher, and said, you know, this is exactly why, you know, I have very strong views. This is exactly why I don't broadcast my views. Not in the classroom, Not on social media. I don't broadcast it. And it got me thinking. I have a lot of friends that are teachers. I dated a teacher for uh, three years. And they were always very careful about what they put on social media. They would not broadcast their political views. Some of them would not broadcast their political views inside the classroom. And they would not broadcast it on social media for a variety of reasons But part of it was they don't want, if they're weighing in on something controversial, for instance, it's not uh, crazy to think that if you're a Trump supporter as a teacher in an area where there are not a lot of Trump supporters, that some parents and some teachers, uh, excuse me, some students may get a little crazy about that. Doesn't mean you're not a good teacher, but it means that maybe you don't want the distraction of broadcasting a political view. Well, I don't even know if Stand with Israel is a political view. It's certainly a geopolitical view. It's very much a foreign policy view. And my question is, do you think teachers should refrain from advertising what their views are on controversial issues? Or on maybe just... 
will change it from controversial issues to political issues in general. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. On the one hand, I understand why teachers do this, meaning I understand why they refrain from stating what their positions are. But on the other hand, my answer is no. I think teachers should be uh, free to broadcast whatever they want outside of the classroom, especially. Uh, But even inside of the classroom, I I I had teachers tell me what their politics were. And you know what? I was glad they would tell me because it allowed me to kind of guard myself against them and uh, see if what they were teaching me in, in the classroom was colored by their political views at all. But I can understand why in the classroom maybe it's a no-no. But I don't think uh, just because you choose a profession like teaching, I don't think that you should abdicate your rights to the full spectrum of free speech. And part of that is being able to post on Facebook. I'd love to hear from some teachers in this regard or retired teachers, 800-848-9222. Should teachers refrain from broadcasting their political views? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. My view is, and we'll apply this all the way up to the college level, because the more, the higher up you go with the older students you have, the more likely it is that one of these students is going to disagree with you and create a big beef Based on one of your views. My view is no. Teachers should be free to talk about whatever they want, especially outside of the classroom. I'm curious what you think. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Coming up in about uh, 20 minutes, we're going to talk with Sheldon Evans. He's a a law professor, and he had a fascinating column in The Hill about uh, the prosecutions of Donald Trump Basically, he said, yeah, they're political, but they're always political. Every prosecution of everybody's political, in essence. I'm oversimplifying it, but we're going to it, get into it. It's a fascinating op-ed, and uh, I'm glad that he was uh, able to join us at this late or early hour. So I'm looking forward to that. And I uh, do want to encourage you to join the Facebook group. If you're on Facebook and would like to connect with other listeners, you could search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's on Facebook, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Joseph's in Pennsylvania. Hello, Joseph. How are you? I'm doing just great, Joseph. Give me your view on what we're talking about. Well, here's my view. I, I'm, I'm now retired, but I was a celebrated teacher in the state of New Jersey. I was actually one of the county teachers of the year for the state of New Jersey. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I've seen a lot, and I know a lot of what's going on in the public schools right now, which I disapprove of. So, directly to your question, I disapprove of teachers giving their political analysis or opinions to kids. Because you have to understand, these kids can easily be manipulated. It's almost exploitation. If they love a teacher, and especially if the teacher is well-celebrated, good teacher, kids like the teacher, they're learning from the teacher, that teacher has a lot of influence, maybe more than parental influence, over that child. And the bottom line is that they give their political views, which may not be in line even with their own parents' views, uh, that's a that's a dangerous 
territory, we're getting paid to teach our subject area. That is it. We're not getting paid to to politically exploit or or to to to, to lend our own opinions of worldviews, whether sure. they be political, I, I, gender, family, or anything. That is not what we were originally supposed to do, and that's the problem with public schools today. Well, first we're of all, I do think I do think this wrong business. I do think this goes on at at some private schools as well. But let me ask you. I agree. Let me ask you, Joseph. Let's say in the case of this teacher, uh, this teacher clearly feels uh, very strongly about supporting Israel. And uh, I don't think students are supposed to friend their teachers on Facebook anyway. Let's say this teacher didn't mention anything about it in the classroom. Do you think the teacher should have refrained from posting on Facebook the teacher's support of Israel? Well, see, that's... (laughs) You just hit a, a subject area that's really a problem for all teachers. When you start soliciting your opinion over any type of media, whether it be Facebook, TikTok, or anything else, the bottom line is it's, it's susceptible for your kids to read. Right. So, so, to, so, yeah, I guess maybe our freedoms are being taken away because we don't, <laughs> if we abide by some type of personal, um, conviction like I do, you would refrain from giving your opinions that way. Just put them in a circle of adults or where you think they may count. But let's face it, um, it's it's just a double-edged sword. You know, if you don't use it, you're you're denying yourself of of the own freedom of using it. And yet, if you choose to not use it or, or to use it, then you're also jeopardizing, you know, your own, um, I guess, uh, you, uh, I'm putting this in a wrong context. No, no, I, I, You're I, jeopardizing the fact that you can be controlling other young people. And that's the problem with the Internet anyway. Half of the information is wrong. Our kids are, are getting a, a totally well, wrong historical information on the Internet to begin wanna, with. Uh, thanks, Joseph. Great call. I, I don't want to get into the uh, accuracy of what you find on the internet because that could be a show in and of itself. But it was very clear what this teacher's view was about the Middle Eastern conflicts, right? Um, If that teacher didn't post that on Facebook, presumably there's no riot, although at this particular school it looks like there's a bit of a track record of students behaving badly even prior to this incident. But presumably there's no menacing of this teacher in the hall in the hallways and all of this is avoided so if this teacher followed the joseph in pennsylvania playbook this particular incident could have been averted that being said and i understand that's why so many teachers i know don't say their politics either in the classroom or on social media that being said even with the risks involved I think teachers should have no qualms about sharing their views on social media. I don't. And I realize this is a much more controversial thing, but I think even in the classroom, as long as those views don't cause you to penalize students that have alternative views, and as long as you are teaching the material fairly, if a student asks you, who are you voting for? I think you should be able to say who you're voting for. 
as long as you're not holding a differing opinion against what you're saying, and as long as you're teaching all about, say, current events or anything fairly. Now, I realize that's much more of a slippery slope, but some of my favorite debates when I was in high school and junior high school were with my teachers. I loved it. I loved mixing it up and learning about, and that's, you know, they were very good debaters, obviously. But I think especially when it comes to social media, there's not... Um, I would hope that teachers don't refrain from broadcasting this. I understand why they do because of that. what that caller Frank told Dominic Carter from what Joseph said to me. One is you've got a lot of power. When you're sculpting young minds, you've got a lot of power. And the other is, as you saw in this case in Queens, what if, what if this, there's some students that don't agree? Do you want them carrying around, stay, carrying out, uh, you know, crying out loud and uh, creating a big to-do about these things? That would be avoided if you refrained from posting. I still don't think they should. I think we need more conversation, not less. So I understand where Joseph's coming from, but I, um, I just part company. 800-848-9222. Larry in Brooklyn, what do you think? Yeah, Frank, I, I agree with you that I thought you were going the other way, but I agree with you that uh, there cannot be any restraint. In fact, social media is the place for for teachers to express their, their views, not in the classroom. And the reason not in the classroom is because there's, that is what, what's causing the problem today, because there are professors, mainly in the universities, that take advantage of the fact that, they could, that they're allowed now to express their opinion. Uh, maybe there was a time when they didn't. They had to be neutral. And now and they went over the edge into indoctrination. And that is why the students start reacting violently, because they're, they're, they're being swayed by certain professors to think in one way. And then when they find out that somebody in the minority thinks the other way because they have young minds and they don't realize that people are entitled to their individual thoughts, they start, get, they start reacting violently. So the teacher should be very subtle and very careful in the classroom about not revealing where they, if only to convey to the students that it's a very private decision and they have to respect people. By not mm -hmm. revealing their opinion, they're, they're conveying that they have to respect it's something well, that is very sacrosanct. Yeah, Larry, Larry, I agree with you. But let's say, um, just to play devil's advocate, I, I, I might say, well, look, all the, this whole incident could have been avoided if this teacher didn't post on Facebook that I, they stand with Israel. And now this is a, a big to-do that's going to have ramifications for who knows how long. What do you say to that? Well, what you're, what you're advocating is worse than the problem. Right. You're agreed. advocating a, pro, a prior restraint yeah. on, on freedom of speech. Re I agree with you, Larry. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Norman in Rockland, what do you think? Hey, Frank. Um, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a delicate line. You don't want your teachers uh, propagandizing to the students. Uh, but on the other hand, we, we should be teaching our children to be more tolerant of right. views that, are, that they don't agree with. And I think that that's... You know, I mean, th this was they were they were a lot of adults could learn that lesson too. By the way, for this teacher, yeah, a lot of adults could learn that uh, that lesson too about being tolerant of of views they don't yes. agree with. Yeah, thanks, Norman. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Marianne is in the Queens. Hi, Marianne. 
Good morning, Frank. Uh, as a mother, I do not applaud that a teacher should bring his uh, political preferences or point of view in the classroom. Now, I also agree that they have a private life. Whatever they do, uh, with whatever, whatever they are, they can do it. I don't see no wrong with them uh, posting anything in the Internet, but they have to be very careful because the problem that we have, in the high, especially in the high schools, is, is real uh, of a concern. I told you because of my son. They are being taught by some teachers that they have to defend the cause of the Democrat Party. And they say that's blank. And I believe that they are not supposed to uh, indoctrinize children to one way or another because they are become, becoming very aggressive. Right. And they are fighting yeah. with each other. And a lot of things is happening Yeah, Marion, I, I, I thank you. I don't think... Anybody, including me, is advocating for indoctrination. Now, again, where do you draw the line between um, stating opinion and indoctrinating? It's it's one of those things that's tougher than it might seem. But um, I see both sides of this, but I really do think that um, that there's nothing that should stop a teacher in the world of social media or even look. We're going to talk with a law professor in a minute who wrote an article. Uh, giving his opinion on something. Now, it's a little bit more of a historical and a legal analysis than it is, uh, oh, I love Democrats or I love Republicans. But when somebody writes an article like that, you know their view. Should teachers not do that? I don't think so. I think we'd be denying the the whole of civilization some really great scholarship. 800-848-9222. Joe is in North Jersey. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hey, Frank. Um, uh, Going on a lighter note with this teacher, what if she uh, was packing a war pistol and uh, it looked like a real gun and uh, these kids were intimidated and uh, turned away? Or, you know, if she possibly uh, would have squirted it at at them, you know, what do you do? What do you do? (laughs) It's just, you know, it's crazy. She should not have uh, put her views on Facebook if she didn't want to uh, get the uh, radical... uh, Skinheads, Nazis, and everybody uh, incited, you know. What are you going to do? So, uh, But, Joe, in putting aside the water pistol aspect of it, you think teachers should avoid broadcasting their controversial views on social media? Yes, at all costs, because the kids today are all grown up. They're so streetwise. You're in, what, Queens was it? Bronx? I don't know. Right. Yeah, it's terrible. (laughs) Kids are like 10 years old shooting each other. You know, that's that's her, her risk. So she has to take it. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to thank you. Well, Frank. And again, You're and the best. Thanks, Joe. You're kind to say so. But again, I don't think that lets the students off the hook at all in terms of behaving inappropriately. I mean, inappropriate behavior is just inappropriate behavior. All right. We're going to talk with a teacher, albeit a law professor, in just a minute. And uh, I am looking forward to this conversation very much. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is a birthday bumper music selection from um, an old friend of mine. I haven't seen her in many years. Amanda Weyerbacher, who's a brilliant woman. She's a uh, PhD. She has a PhD in pharmacology, and she's done a lot of great work in the healthcare field. And uh, a, a beautiful, brilliant woman who is uh, really making a contribution to the world of, uh, of healthcare, and uh, I am wishing her a happy birthday. It is anything but a happy occasion for anybody that is involved in the Trump organization. Because, as I'm sure a lot of you know, this bank fraud trial has been going on in New York State, where you have the Attorney General, Letitia James, Pursuing this civil fraud trial, which is basically seeking to kick Donald Trump out of his own company. And you know what really hit home for me on uh, Tuesday of last week? They had the company's former accountant, Jeffrey McConney, and uh, testifying. And he's on the witness stand and he starts crying. This guy, this this very professional, very accomplished accountant starts crying on the witness stand and he bemoaned the way law enforcement keeps targeting him, meaning the accountant, to get his former boss, former boss, doesn't even still work there. And I just thought, what a shame that is, because how different would the world be, not only for Jeffrey McConney, but for Donald Trump. Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, if Donald Trump had never run for president before and just kept doing what he was doing, I don't think you would have not only not seen this bank fraud trial, I don't think you would have seen these four criminal prosecutions, whatever you think of Donald Trump, even Michael Smirkanish, who's not a a Trump guy at all, has said that uh, he doesn't think these prosecutions would have been brought, certainly not the Alvin Bragg case, but for Donald Trump's political activism. And that kind of goes hand in hand with what Trump has said from the beginning about these criminal prosecutions. This trial is a total witch hunt, and I should be entitled to a jury like everybody else is entitled to a jury. I have no rights to have a jury. It's ridiculous. Thank you very much. Uh, Now, I think actually there might have been a situation in which he could have gotten a jury in that civil trial, but he has said the same thing about the four criminal prosecutions. And that's why uh, a lot of the people that have been bemoaning Donald Trump's treatment by the Department of Justice and by prosecutors in New York and Georgia may be surprised to learn that they're on the same side of an issue of people that they wouldn't necessarily see eye to eye with. And all this was sort of 
articulated very well for me in a column that I read in The Hill by Sheldon Evans, who's a professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis, and he focuses primarily on the intersections of criminal sentencing, punishment theory, and immigration policies. Uh, Professor Sheldon Evans, thanks so much for staying up late or getting up early with us. I'm, I'm happy to be on with you here, Frank, um, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. Sheldon, I know before we discuss your op-ed, which I thought was uh, really interesting, in addition to the work that you're doing now out, out in Missouri, you used to be a teacher out in my neck of the woods in New York at St. John's and a lot of other East Coast schools. We're heard in New York now. We're heard on KMOX in St. Louis now. Culturally, lifestyle-wise, what's the biggest difference between living and working in New York versus living and working in St. Louis? Oh, boy. Well, um, I would say the biggest change is the really the, the pace, the pace of it. You know, every place in the country has a different pace. Um, and, you know, New York City... Um, is is just alive, you know, and it's 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 just um, there, there's so many great people there, um, and everybody's always on all the time, and that's um, that has a lot of great qualities to it. Um, in other places in the country, you know, it's a little bit more relaxed, um, you know, I- including my home state of California. I would I would um, uh, argue is is that way as well. So it's it's a it's a bit of a more relaxed pace, which, which works, um, for, for some people who aren't, you know, um, as, as, uh, maybe born and bred in New York. I gotcha. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Uh, Sheldon, I thought your op-ed really made a lot of sense, no matter where people come from uh, across the political spectrum. My guess, and it's only guess, my guess, though, just so folks know where you're coming from, is that politically you're not a Trump supporter. Would I be accurate in that guess? Um, you, you have me dead to rights. Okay, I, I gotcha. would put myself in, in that camp. Gotcha. We just had a discussion and it's, uh, I thought it was an interesting discussion and a lot of people raised interesting points about what teachers going from, you know, the high school level, the collegiate level, all the way up to what you do at law school, what they should tell their students about their own political views do you do you tell your students where you come down on political issues? That's a very interesting question about kind of the philosophy of teaching. My standpoint is um, I do not tell my students uh, where I personally lean uh, because my goal in the classroom isn't really to pontificate my own views. My goal in the classroom is to give the students tools um, in which they can come to their, their own conclusions. And, um, you know, I, I think for, for me, uh, the mark of a great teacher is one where at the end of the semester, you don't really know where they lean. Mm. Um, And that's, that's my own perspective. Many teachers I respect have different perspectives uh, but that's how I tend to structure my own philosophy. All right. Um, as far as you can tell, do you think these Trump criminal prosecutions are political? 
yes, yes. Um, now, it's not as simple as as simply saying, um, you know, because Trump is a Republican, then that means everybody who's a Democrat, um, you know, especially political leaders are are always going to be after him. And that's the only thing that matters in these decisions. It's D versus R and it's R versus D. Right. That That's that's an oversimplified um, version or an oversimplified answer to kind of the, the poli- how politics are involved in crime. Um, but politics is certainly a factor um, that, that decision makers take into account. So when you have, uh, you know, left-leaning Democrats and left-leaning prosecutors uh, who are looking to make a name for themselves, um, you know, a, a, a big fish like Donald Trump is uh, certainly somebody to, uh, you know, that, that they focus on and would put under, I think, additional scrutiny than, um, you know, than, than kind of the average citizen in their jurisdiction. You get into some of the institutional problems with uh, that lead to things like this, which I want to get into in a moment. But if, I'm curious if you share my view that um, if Trump were not running for president now, it's very unlikely that these five cases, the four criminal cases and the civil fraud case would have been brought by prosecutions. Do you agree with that? That's a, that is a tough question. Um, I think that there, there might be something to that. Um, I, I do think that there, there is somewhat of an urgency. And when you look at the time of these cases, um, Donald Trump's candidacy makes, um, makes the decision to charge him. And when these, when these charging decisions came out, um, it, it certainly was part of the calculus of what to charge him with, when to charge him, and also where he's being charged as well. Um, so I do think that his, his upcoming candidacy was a factor, um, I don't know if it's if it was the deciding factor. If if he wasn't running, would these things you know still be uh, coming against him? Uh, but I but I think that there's a good argument that you know I, I, that 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 was an important factor in moving forward with with some of these cases. Many people have probably heard that uh, Jim Jordan and several other House Republicans are threatening to investigate local prosecutors over these Trump prosecutions. You you write in your piece for The Hill, uh, which I'm going to link to, and uh, people could check out at facebook.com slash moranofan. You write, one need not agree with Trump's claims of political martyrdom or with would-be House Speaker Jim Jordan's threats to investigate local prosecutors to understand the perverse incentives of a politicized criminal legal system. What are the incentives of a politicized criminal justice system, Sheldon? Yeah, so most of us think about crime and, you know, punishing offenders uh, based on, you know, some sense of moral justice that, you know, people who do something wrong and they know that it's wrong are being punished fairly 
according to, you know, what they did wrong. And that's really an idealized sense of the criminal legal system. And that's not always how it works out. So some of the perverse incentives that seep their way into the existing criminal legal system are things like political considerations. So, you know, everybody who does something wrong isn't necessarily getting punished. And there are people um, who are looking to maybe garner votes by targeting certain people, you know, on this side of the aisle, you know, there might be some left-leaning prosecutors that are looking to garner votes in their blue districts by targeting uh, former President Donald Trump. But, you know, that also works on the other side of the aisle. There might be um, some right-leaning prosecutors or policymakers that are looking to garner votes by targeting, mm-hmm. uh, by targeting certain communities as well. So I think this is such an interesting point. Obviously, in a place like Manhattan, Donald Trump, on the whole, is not popular. So if you're running for office in Manhattan, like Alvin Bragg is, it's an easy way to score some political points by prosecuting Donald Trump. If you're a prosecutor in a state like uh, Wyoming or West Virginia and you have an opportunity to bring a prosecution against Hunter Biden, I imagine there are going to be no shortage of voters that think that's a good idea and then either elect you or reelect you. Given what we're seeing with elected prosecutors in the Trump cases, you have Alvin Bragg, Fonnie Willis and uh, Letitia James. Do you think that it would depoliticize the legal system and the criminal justice system to have appointed prosecutors as, say, New Jersey does on the county level rather than elected prosecutors? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I do think that it would certainly help mitigate some of the, you know, these perverse incentives we're talking about. You know, if prosecutors didn't have to worry about, you know, garnering votes for their next um, election. However, you know, let's say that, you know, there's an appointed prosecutor, you know, and, and we have to ask the question, who are they being appointed by? They're, they're still going to be right. appointed by some political actor, whether that's the governor, you know, they're, you know, federal judges are appointed by the president of the United States. So there's still going to be some political considerations in who does that person in power appoint to be a prosecutor? Um, and um, is, you know, that prosecutor doesn't, isn't necessarily doing that person's bidding, but there are political considerations in who is appointed to be a prosecutor. Well, it's likely to be somebody who leans um, in, in, uh, in, the, in kind of the, the political favor of the person doing the appointing. So there, there are still going to be some trickle down effects of uh, kind of political considerations in who's being selected to be a prosecutor and where they tend to lean in their kind of criminal justice philosophy. Right. One of the uh, best examples of that is when uh, George W. Bush 
uh, took the unprecedented step of dismissing seven U.S. attorneys. And uh, the rumor was that the Bush administration was unhappy that these people weren't prosecuting Democrats or that they weren't putting the brakes on investigations into Republican prosecution. So to your point, you can absolutely have uh, appointed prosecutors that are just as political as the as the elected ones. So. Um, when we talk about going after uh, Donald Trump, right, obviously Donald Trump is very famous and there are other people that have been the subject of high level criminal prosecutions before that happen to be famous. People like Roger Clemens, people like uh, Martha Stewart, folks like uh, John Edwards, folks, you know, mm-hmm. in a wide variety of sectors. Is it about is it political or is it about getting high profile scalps so that the prosecutor that gets that high profile scalp can then benefit from the publicity and the other opportunities that come with being front and center of uh, a high profile case? Well, it can be a little bit of both. Um, I, I certainly think that uh, many prosecutors are incentivized by kind of trying to reel in a big fish. And that doesn't always have to be politicized, right? There, there can be, uh, you know, various nonpartisan celebrity type offenders um, that, would, uh, that would also benefit a prosecutor's career to say, you know, I, I brought down Martha Stewart as, as being one of your examples. But now let's play that out a little bit. If, if a prosecutor brings down Martha Stewart, well, is that still a politicized uh, decision? To a certain extent, it is. Mm. Even though Martha Stewart is nonpartisan, that prosecutor can still themselves benefit politically by going after a big fish. So it's not always about the, the politicization of the of the target, but it can also benefit the political career of um, of the prosecutor. And, you know, really quickly, another New York example is uh, Mayor uh, Rudy Giuliani, who back in the day, you know, he was he went after the mob very, very, um, you know, maybe famous is the wrong word, but but a targeted a a powerful group and made a big name for himself and rode that all the way into the mayor's office. Yeah, uh, no question about it. Uh, That's a great example. Um, One of the things that I hear from a lot of Trump supporters is that it seems like the Justice Department only cuts one way, that when Republicans do something wrong or someone associated with Donald Trump does something wrong, they get indicted or investigated. And uh, there is a feeling that that's not as common uh, when it's the other side of the aisle. Is that true? Have Democrats been the victim of these sort of political prosecutions as well? I would say you have to look at the arc of history. Um, So so for the history buffs, uh, the answer is almost certainly yes. But it worked a little bit differently. So, you know, this goes back even to the 60s and 70s. It's something I talk a little bit about in my article um, that uh, Republican presidents, especially such as Richard Nixon, um, actually targeted 
people and use the criminal justice system from the president's office to target groups that he believed uh, were his political enemies. And he targeted and, and used policies to target um, left-leaning anti-war, what he called hippies, you know, his term, not mine, and also African-Americans. Both of these groups he deemed to, you know, not be voting for him and, you know, be, to be voting against him. Um, and so he made it known um, you know, at least among his inner circle that, you know, he was going to target these certain groups to, um, to kind of lessen their political power and, you know, so that he could gain politically from that. Um, and those are two groups that historically would vote Democrat, um, and might still be voting Democrat. Um, and we see some of the, the impacts of mass incarceration still impacting uh, some of those groups even to this day. Is that why there has historically, at least until recently, been such a disparity for the mandatory minimum prison sentence for crack cocaine versus regular powdered cocaine? That's, that's certainly part of it. Um, and you know, there, there still is a sentencing disparity under federal law and, you know, different States have, um, you know, have, have different, uh, ways of, of, uh, targeting those, those different crimes. Um, but you know, the, the mandatory minimums, if you look across the board, um, you know, race does indeed play a factor. Um, in who's being targeted, what communities are um, are kind of a part of the the dragnet, um, and what cases are being brought to prosecutors, and then ultimately the decision of prosecutors to charge certain crimes and and apply for certain sentences um, does often um, uh, unfortunately have dis- have racial disparities uh, to them. Talking with Sheldon Evans, he's a professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis. You write that we the people are partially to blame for the politicization of the legal system. How come? What did we do? Well, we are the people, to use that phrase, that are voting in politicians. You know, the the power of this great government that we have um, is derived from us. We have the power to vote, um, and um, we are voting in the types of politicians that are, um, you know, that are engaged in these perverse incentives. Um, but it goes a little bit deeper than that because uh, politicians, on their part, are also. Um, using crime as a um, as a tool that somewhat drives fear, and there are few things that drive people um, in their lives or certainly to the voting booths um, more than fear. It's it's the fear of crime, and it's it's a very real fear um, that motivates a lot of people to to vote and to to vote a certain way and to vote for the tough on crime candidate. We've heard that before. Um, and that was very popular in the eighties, nineties, and, and it's even uh, popular to this day 
which of these candidates is going to keep us safe from crime? Um, and so that is indeed a fear that politicians play on. And it is something that we, the people, are still voting on. And as long as we vote, um, you know, according to crime policies, politicians will continue to push that button. And, you know, as I say in my op-ed, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that we should be driven mm-hmm. by crime policies, um, you know, to, to pick who is the best leader, you know, for our particular jurisdiction or country. Sheldon, I'm going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the time. I hope we could talk again in the future. Thanks so much, Frank. Take care. Thank you, Sheldon Evans. And again, if you want to read the piece, uh, we there's a lot more detail other than what we just spoke about, but you can go to my Facebook page. I just posted it up there, facebook.com slash Fan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. This is The Other Side of Midnight. You can comment if you like, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Comment if you like, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Out of all the reindeer, you know you're the mastermind. Run, run, Rudolph. Randolph ain't too far behind. This is Shatner Claus. That's right. William Shatner from his terrific Christmas album, Shatner Claus. We put up our Christmas decorations yesterday. And um, th- that's a tradition in the Moreno household these last few years is we put up our Christmas decorations while listening to Shatner Claus, a terrific album if you're interested in Christmas music. Rudolph, by the way, is one of the people that, um, or one of the characters that my son recognizes he has a a rudolph doll he knows exactly who rudolph is he calls him rudolph the red-nosed reindeer and sometimes he'll actually sing rudolph the red-nosed reindeer not this particular version but you know the more conventional version he knows he has a very shiny nose and so forth and uh, i was uh, glad to be able to spend a lot of time with my son over the last few days obviously the holidays and his birthday and uh, just spending some time with him he really has gotten uh, so mature, but he's just, I find him so funny. You know what he does is he'll ask for something and then you'll clarify if that's what he's asking for. And then he'll act like it was your idea but and say, okay. You know, for instance, he'll say, ice pop? And then, and then you'll say, do you want what do you want an are you asking for do you want an ice pop? And then he'll say, Okay. They, you know, he does that. He'll ask, You want an ice pop? And I'll say, Okay. Like I came up with it. No. Just say yes. You want an ice pop? Yes, please. But um, but he does remember his manners most of the uh, most of the time. 
I had a, a very difficult day in terms of trying to sleep yesterday. And I know a lot of people are awake right now because they're having a difficult time trying to sleep. And you know what really, and I have a lot of experience working odd hours, really almost my whole life. The biggest mistake people make when they can't sleep, when they're lying down in bed and they can't sleep, is panicking. And you really can't stress. And I know I do it. I was doing this yesterday because I'm lying in bed and I don't know what it was. I had maybe my weekly cup of coffee on Sunday morning. Maybe that played a factor. I also had a diet Coke yesterday, which I rarely do. And maybe having two caffeinated beverages, even if it was that early in the day, it screwed me up sleep wise because I was still up at uh, a quarter to five and I couldn't sleep. I tried twice to sleep uh, so that I'd be well-prepared for the show. Couldn't sleep a wink. I am uh, lying in bed wide awake. And then so uh, you start thinking to myself, oh, no, I'm going to be exhausted for the show or I'm going to be exhausted for my flight or I'm going to be exhausted, whatever. You, you you work yourself up into a panic and then you you can't relax. So I uh, I you have to take a deep breath and almost meditate. And sometimes you get to sleep, sometimes you don't. But you have to, when you're trying to sleep and you can't, I, I think you have to accept the fact that, okay, you're not going to sleep. You're going to sit here or lie here. Your body is resting. And if you're not getting sleep, you're not getting sleep. At least your body is resting. And then eventually, I find most of the time, didn't work for me yesterday, but most of the time, you do fall asleep. If you mimic the sleeping position it's kind of like our conversation about gratitude last week. If you're not feeling grateful and you act grateful anyway, eventually you do become grateful. I think the same could be true of sleep. I know it sounds bizarre, but I do think that's true. All right. Those of you that are eager to chat, you can call me at 800-848-9222. We got commendations coming up and a whole lot more. Until next hour. Uh, our phone number, by the way, 800-848-9222. We're on Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm superstar Frank Morano. We're going to do commendations in just a minute where I will give a uh, pat on the back to people that I think deserve one for doing something that is laudatory. I must uh, first let me give a uh, a shout out while not a formal commendation. I, I must give a public job well done to our own uh, Matt Blaze. Uh, Matt 
unlike most people in America, did not take a single day off for the Thanksgiving holiday. And he's someone that has been asked to do a lot more since Kenneth left. He's had to take over most, if not all, of Kenneth's responsibilities and uh, has done a very good job in doing so under very, very trying circumstances, been asked to step up in a big way, do a lot more work, and I'm not sure he's gotten any more money, and uh, honestly, not a single day off from uh, Thanksgiving or anything like that. And on Friday, especially with myself and a lot of the other hosts broadcasting remotely, there was, and of all days, I think one or two people that were supposed to be working in that shift called out sick. Matt basically was doing the job of uh, of three people. So, um, and then I thought for sure he would not remember to print these articles that I had sent for commendations, and I was going to sort of jab him on that. Sure enough, you know what I'm holding? Stack of articles. Stack of articles. I hope they're the right articles. Yeah, so do I, especially after that. Um did you get to relax at all over the weekend? Uh, I did. I did relax. I did what you did um, early this morning. I put up a Christmas tree and you decorated. Did. I did. You do the fake tree? Aren't yeah. you Jewish, though? Yeah, but, you know, since my better half is not Jewish, it gave me the excuse to have a Christmas I tree. I say, well, good for you. That's good. Well, I did and I see, um, is Tony out sick? Yes. By the way? So, um, he Very did, sick. He didn't get you sick on Friday. I know you were nervous about that. No, this is why I told him not to come in the control room at all on Friday. Well, I'm glad that he's staying home uh, when he's sick, but we have uh, Broadway Bill Lee in his stead. Uh, how's it going, Bill? Thanks for coming in. Appreciate your efforts. And, uh, you know, I appreciate, I know these hours are tough, but I appreciate you being willing to pitch in. Thank you. Uh, if you want to talk to Bill, you can do so. 800-848-9222. Hey, this is the only the other thing I'll mention before we go to commendations. I don't know how many times I've had to say this. I feel like the guy that used to do the this is your brain on drugs commercials, you know, where he'd fry the egg. Okay, last time. This is your brain. You know, you know the commercial. Emails are for email. SMS text messages are for SMS text messages. And I feel silly having to repeat this, but you can text me whenever you want. Just shoot me a text at 8168-MORANO. It's 8168-M-O-R-A-N-L. The reason I say that is because there's three or four listeners that are always sending text messages to me through my email address. And it's really annoying because I have to open that as an attachment rather than just see it come up on my phone. And then if they try to send a picture or something or if there's a picture that's relevant to whatever they're making a comment about, it doesn't come up for me because they're sending it through my email. If you are sending something as a text message, send it as a text message. Simple as that. If you're texting, use 8168-MORANO. Do not email. If you're emailing, use frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Simple as that. The other thing is, this is, there's really only one offender of this, maybe two. I love it when people send me articles. And 80 to 90% of them are articles that I've already seen. But I'd say 10 to 20% of them are things that I haven't seen. 
And a lot of them are things that I end up mentioning, they, things that wind up on this program. So even if there are articles that I've seen, keep sending them because uh, the one time you don't send an article that would make a compelling talk topic, chances are that's the one time I'll have missed it. But there's this one guy that he sends me maybe 20 or 30 emails a day. Each email is a separate article, basically a link to a news story. If you're going to do that, and if you want to send me 20, 30 news articles, great. Why send 20 or 30 emails? I say to this guy, his name's Robert. I say to this guy, send me one email and throw in all the articles that you want me to see in the email. It doesn't have to be one email per article. It's really irritating. It just fills up my email box. And especially I use email to kind of um, plan my uh, schedule because when I get um, 80 emails done, that's where I'm going to make a list of things that I need to do for the show. When I have 70 emails done, I'm going to read a chapter of my book. When I have 60 unread emails open uh, or uh, the 60 unread emails to get to, that's when I'll write in my journal. When I have 50 unread emails, that's when I'll exercise. When I have 40 emails. So by getting my email box cluttered with all, all this stuff, which could easily just be one email, it totally screws up my work productivity. Um, so that's my request. Do you know why that happens? Because they read the article and, and they, they click the, share. Right, exactly. Yeah. But uh, is it that much more effort? It, it, especially if you know you're going to send me a bunch of articles, which this guy does every day. If you know that you're going to send me a bunch of articles, just open an email, open a brand new email, Frank.Morano at Red Apple Audio Networks, hey, and then just stack them in there. Copy, paste. Exactly. Link by link. Right. Or think, you know, just boom, one at a time. I agree. I, I just, I don't get it. Just the way I printed your list. You exactly. had all, all the links. Right. That's a great. In the same that's, email. That's a perfect example. I don't send Matt the list of articles that I'd like him to print one article at a time. I send him one email with all the articles that I'd like printed. And I say, please print these. That's it. No reason you can't do that. Simple. Simple. All right. Um, let's get to the commending, shall we? It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. Let me uh, begin by commending the Taliban. Yes, the Taliban. They're terrible. They're Islamic fundamentalists. They don't respect women's rights. They've closed nail salons. They're horrible. But you know where they have just done an incredible job since taking over? They have destroyed opium production in Afghanistan. Opium poppy production in Afghanistan, which used to be the world's top supplier, has plummeted since the Taliban took over and banned the cultivation of narcotics. How much has it plummeted? Opium poppy supply has plummeted 95%. I mean, that is incredible. It's just extraordinary. Now, this is not without other areas because sometimes this is leading to people that were looking forward to the 
good old-fashioned natural opium and opioids to pursue synthetic opiates. But I, I think this is a pretty impressive track record in terms of managing the drug trade in their country. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of these drugs being more expensive and hopefully fewer people doing them. But you got to give the devil his due. And I think the Taliban, they know how to get the drug trade under control. They certainly do. All right. I want to commend popcorn. Uh, I am terrified of one day suffering with dementia. I the, the thing that I pride myself on is having a very good memory. And the thing that I entertain myself the most with is my memory. And I, I could, I really do think, I'm not volunteering for this, but I really do think I could do well in solitary confinement because I am playing movies in my head all the time of things that I've done, things that I've seen, things that I've read, things that I've heard, and I just play them in my head all day long. I can sit and amuse myself without anything. And one of the things that I've always been terrified about is dementia. And new research published in the journal Neurology on Wednesday found that people who ate more whole grains were eight and a half years younger cognitively than those who ate smaller amounts. Do you know what a whole grain is? Popcorn. So new research suggests that incorporating whole grains like popcorn into the diet is associated with a lower risk of cognitive decline. This is incredible. Whole grains included in the study were some breads and cereals, quinoa and popcorn. One serving of whole grains was defined as one ounce of food, which would be about one slice of bread, a half cup of cooked pasta or rice, an ounce of crackers or a cup of dry cereal. And this was done by researchers at Rush University in Chicago. It, this seems pretty pretty convincing to me. So if you want to stave off dementia, have some popcorn. I want to commend the owners of an Oakland barbecue joint. Um, they gave away 150 turkeys for Thanksgiving. Okay, what's the big deal? They gave away 150 turkeys after a fire burned down their restaurant. So I want to give a full-throated commendation to Horn Barbecue, particularly the pitmaster and award-winning chef Matt Horn. Matt Horn and his team handed out 150 Thanksgiving turkeys and vowed to rebuild their flagship business. It's always worth celebrating people giving away turkeys turkeys to charity like this but especially when you just lost your business to a fire very very impressive unfortunately i have to give a posthumous commendation to casey mcintyre casey mcintyre's passed away she was a new yorker she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2019 and she lost her life just uh just about two weeks ago 38 years old. Oh, I hate to hear this. But in the days leading up to her death, she urged friends 
to donate to a campaign that would cancel the medical debt of strangers. By the time of her death, that campaign raised enough to pay off nearly $19 million in debt and has since tripled its impact. So before she died, Ms. McIntyre wrote on Twitter that she was arranging to buy up others' medical debt and then destroy it to celebrate her life. Now, I mean, that's an incredibly impressive person who takes a cancer diagnosis and uses it as an opportunity to wipe out other people's medical debt. Very, very impressive. Uh, I also want to give a a posthumous commendation to Jeffrey Holt. Jeffrey Holt is an impressive person. He died earlier this year with a secret. No, he didn't have a secret second family somewhere. He died with the secret that he was a multimillionaire. Here was a guy who was an unassuming caretaker of a mobile home mobile home park in Hinsdale, New Hampshire, where he lived a simple but curious life. People would see him around town in threadbare clothes, riding his lawnmower, heading to the convenience store, parked along the main road, reading a newspaper or watching cars pass. He left his entire $3.8 million fortune to a his small community and he left this small town in New Hampshire millions 3.8 million dollars to the town of Hinsdale New Hampshire to benefit the communities in the community in the areas of education health recreation and culture I mean this is really impressive and this is money in a small town like this that is going to go quite far This man is a man among men. And if there is a heaven, you can bet your bottom dollar that Jeffrey Holt is there. Didn't even want the credit while he was alive for doing this. I want to give a commendation to a teenager by the name of Lauren Schroeder, who grew, who has grown 7,000 pounds of vegetables to donate them. She volunteered at a community nonprofit at the age of 14. And since then, she was inspired to make a difference for families in need of fresh vegetables. So she has been growing vegetables for years and giving them away. She started a garden in a half acre area on her parents' farm growing lettuce, carrots, tomato, zucchini. And while her mom was supportive, she made her aware how much work this would take. Still, she was up for the challenge. So uh, she got a grant from the National FFA organization, which promotes agricultural education to pay for seeds and gardening supplies, but she did all the work herself. Her efforts have paid off. Her first harvest resulted in 40 pounds of produce, that she then donated to eight local charities, including food banks, a soup kitchen, and a nursing home. And uh, she's just kept it up. So far, 7,000 pounds of vegetables, which she has happily donated. I want to commend Dolly Parton. You know, I was surprised. I was at a, a thing on Friday, and some people said 
They didn't think that it was appropriate for Dolly Parton at her age to be dressed like a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. I completely disagree. I think, um, you know, Dolly Parton at 77 years old is sending the message that you can be a more mature woman, an older woman, and still be sexy, which she was. So I, I am not just giving her a commendation for that. But I'm giving her a commendation for her new album. I think it's great that at this point in her career, she's still producing new music, but especially for her $1 million donation to the Salvation Army. I mean, and she has she donated a million dollars to the Salvation Army Red Kettle campaign, and she's encouraged other people to do so as well. I think this is great. I'm a big supporter of the Salvation Army. I'm a donor to the Salvation Army. I've raised a lot of money for the Salvation Army over the years. And uh, I think it's great that Dolly Parton is not just putting her money where her, marth, ma- where her mouth is, but encouraging other people to do likewise. So uh, this is a triple commendation for Dolly Parton. One, sh- you know, showing off her body at 77 years old. Two, for the new album. And three, for making that donation to the Salvation Army. I want to commend um, Jeff Haynes. This gentleman is a hero truck driver. An Illinois woman was parked in front of Jeff Haynes, who's a, a truck driver. And Haynes was calmly sitting on the side of the road in his cement truck, listening to classical Chinese violin music, All of a sudden, a woman pulls up in front of his truck, gets out, and gives the international symbol that her airwaves were being blocked. Two hands on the neck. So Haynes, a former Army infantryman, doesn't know this woman, but he jumps into action, performs the Heimlich maneuver, three thrusts up and in from under the ribcage, which dislodged the piece of food that was choking her. Saved her life. Saved a stranger's life. Love it. I want to give a commendation to longtime Borough Hall staffer on Staten Island and former Deputy Borough President Eddie Burke. Eddie Burke is retiring um, after decades of working in Borough Hall. I know this might be a little too local of a commendation, but I think public service is something to be proud of. And if you do it well and you work hard at it and you work honestly at it, I think that's something to be celebrated in every community. And I'm sure there are people like Eddie Burke in every community. But Eddie Burke has worked for Borough President Guy Molinari, Borough President James Molinaro as the Deputy Borough President, Borough President James Otto as the Deputy Borough President, and now as a staffer to Vito Fasella. Those are one, two, three, four different men with vastly different views of how that office of borough president should be. And the fact that Eddie was able to thrive with his own style in all four of those administrations is remarkably impressive. And uh, I'm wishing him the best of luck in his retirement. And he's a great guy. I don't know Eddie super well, but I know him a long time. And uh, he is a wonderful, wonderful guy. I want to commend Marvin McLaren, a dad of four, who's an MTA bus driver whose fatherly instincts kicked in early Monday 
when he helped reunite a six-year-old girl and her 11-year-old brother with their parents after they boarded his bus in East New York before sunrise wearing pajamas and shorts. Marvin is a dad of four, and he said he was stunned when he saw the two kids alone at a bus stop and as his bus pulled up just before 5.15 a.m., said his first thought was, what are they doing out here this time of morning? Why are they not with anyone, and why don't they have coats on? So the children were in good condition, and there doesn't appear to be any criminality, but the 48-year-old bus driver said the little boy who had on shorts, socks, and rubber slippers politely asked if he and his little sister could have a ride after boarding the bus without paying then guided his pajama-clad sibling to the back where he opened up his book bag and took out some candy. Marvin said he was very intrigued, and he kept an eye on the two while waiting to see if someone was waiting for them at any stop along his route. And he wasn't going to let them off until he knew they were safe. Once the bus arrived at the end of the route, McLaren said he approached the kids and asked where they were headed. Their response on an adventure to Target. I, the bus driver says, Target isn't open this time of the morning, so you guys are going to stay with me for a little while because it's cold outside. So then he notifies the MTA supervisors and the transport workers union. The bus operator gave the 11-year-old boy a jacket and handed a sweater to his sister. He gave her a cell phone so she could watch YouTube videos, and he told them to stay in front of the bus where it's warm. And they just kept saying they were going on an adventure to Target. So, I, thankfully, they were able to get these kids reunited back where they were supposed to be with their families. I don't know the details of their fami- family situation, but apparently they're safe and sound. And uh, it's easy to see this going another way. If there were not someone as eagle-eyed as Marvin McLaren on that bus. Um, and finally, I want to commend Britain. Britain has won the World Cup. Well, not that World Cup. Britain has won, or the UK has won, the World Cup of littering. Yes, they... Um, Britain beat out 21 teams from around the world in picking up trash. So it's the opposite of littering, picking up litter. In the inaugural Spogomi World Cup in Tokyo, and it's a contest that's aimed at raising awareness of environmental issues, and apparently the British, they pick up garbage better than any country on Earth, at least any of the ones that were participating in this contest. Very impressive. Congratulations to the United Kingdom and to all of this week's recipients of a commendation. If you have a comment on someone that I have commended, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
And I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a way to make a living Barely getting by It's all taking and no giving They just use your mind And they never give you credit It's enough to drive you Crazy if you let it Nine to five For service and devotion You would think that I Would deserve a fair promotion Want to move ahead won't seem to let me I swear sometimes that man is out to get me How do you not love Dolly Parton? I mean only one Dolly am I right? All right, uh, we're going to get to your calls in a minute. There's one open line if you want to jump on board, 800-848-9222. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Posted a photo of my son over the weekend for his second birthday. He was born two years ago on Thanksgiving, so I believe his birthday is on Thanksgiving. My wife believes his birthday is on November 25th. So we had a uh, party for him on Saturday. And uh, it was a lot of fun. We mostly just invited uh, other uh, children, other children from the neighborhood, you know, and other people that have children around his age and family. So there were a lot of people that didn't make the cut. My wife was very tough with this guest list, but somehow we still ended up with 50 people. And, uh, you know, we don't have a tremendously large house. In fact, recently... My wife told me that the we have a smaller than average house in terms of square footage. So we didn't want everybody inside because it would get pretty cramped. So we got this bouncy house, which is almost like a, a trampoline, but it was cars themed. My son loves anything to do with cars. He loves playing with cars. He loves looking at cars. He likes both real cars and matchbox cars. Loves cars. He will sit there, you know, all day long and just play with cars. So it was a cars-themed bouncy house, which he seemed to really enjoy, and so did uh, a lot of the other children that came, which was nice. And uh, I did something I very rarely do. I had a. I never drink soda, but I had, I think, two sodas. Two sodas. My wife made me promise two things. Uh, in addition to, you know, helping run the party and helping bartend and stuff. She said, don't get drunk, which I was not going to anyway. And she said, do not put on the television any wrestling documentaries. Those were her two criteria. So I, I didn't touch the television. And then um, I did put on for the after party for anyone that still happened to be there at seven o'clock. I did put on the Survivor Series. But, you know, nobody really watched this. It's fine. And uh, my thinking was, all right, just so I have something to hold for the first two hours of this party, let me drink water. And then I see all these other people drinking soda. So let me have a Diet Coke. I have a Diet Coke or two. And uh, that was fun. You know, one of the things that I was really hoping, I have a very close friend, uh, Brian Silverstein, and he's Jewish. He's spoken out on the show before about how I'm not anti-Semitic. And I have a neighbor who has, you know, has children who's Muslim. And I had hoped that they would both be at the party 
and that we could stage a photograph of Brian Silverstein shaking hands with my Muslim neighbor. He, I'm not going to mention his name because he guards his privacy very closely and carefully. And we could share that photo on social media showing Brian and um, this other fella that they can reach across faiths and send a message to the world. But my other, my neighbor didn't end up coming, so we weren't able to get that interfaith photo shown. But it was a nice party nonetheless. My mom got him this a very elaborate birthday cake. I'm not even going to ask her how much this cake uh, cost, but it was a cake in the shape of a two with this very elaborate car design on it and actual physical cars on the cake. So my son had not much interest in the cake, but he did have a great deal of interest in the cars. And when I say cars, they were toy cars on the cake, in the cars that were on the cake. So he was trying to grab at all the cars rather than rather than uh, respond to everybody singing him happy birthday. But I think it was a lot of fun. I think it was a lot of fun. And uh, it was uh, when you have a lot of people, it's tough to manage. It's also difficult to spend a lot of time with all of your guests. But I think we we managed it as appropriately as we could. And he seemed to have a lot of fun. So I, I, if we if he had fun, we had fun. 800-848-9222. That was our weekend. So Thursday was Thanksgiving. We were out on Eastern Long Island. Friday, we went to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania to my cousin Joanne's and spent time with uh, my cousins out there. Saturday, we did Carmine's birthday party. Sunday, we did Christmas decorations. So it was a whirlwind weekend. That's us. 800-848-9222. William is in Manhattan. What's on your mind, William? Hey, Frank, I want to say thank you. You have a marriage license that you have to deal with, and the reason why that is is you know that once you are married, you have no rights. The baby takes over everything in your wife, and they want to deface the identity of American society freedom. Do you know that? I don't. I'm not sure I follow. Who wants to deface the society? I'm going to break it down to you quite simply and frankly. I'm talking about once you commit yourself to something as far as a marriage, which is production of life, Adam and Eve, I'm talking about people and giving your talent out. I'm a stand-up comedian, and I belong to John the Baptist Church. I'm talking about life. And when you paint a picture, you share it. It's like Picasso. People don't understand the reality of life. They're too much into themselves. That's what I'm saying. All right. Well, so I, I think I'm taking it as a sincere compliment then, William. It's more than a compliment. The reality is that people live in a dream world. And if you're not expressive towards relating to everybody, like my mother, I had to come out, find out I came out of her body. I can't tell her what to what to put inside of it, like her husband, which is my stepfather, or my three crazy sisters, or my co-workers in comedy. You know, I've been in comedy for years, but life is reality. It's not a joke. And I, I, you entertain me, and i got to deal with the whole world. And if I don't make them laugh, they feel like... They're crying if I don't say hello to them. I feel like you're very intense to be a comedian, William. Well, it's not the intense. I'm the only boy and it's three girls. And I never had time to breathe. I always had to be the leader. And it's very hard when you have that position in life. 
it, it, it is. It, it's not easy, but I really feel entertained. You keep me on the edge of my seat. I, I appreciate that, William. Listening to your I show. love it. I All love right? it. Thank you, you, William. And Rita Crosby and, and Curtis Lee Mice. I'm, I'm not familiar with them, but thank you. 800-848-9222. Frank is in California. Hello, Frank. Frank, you had your um, Sheldon Evans earlier. Yes, I'm aware. Other than that, Frank, I just know you from the radio, and you seem like a real family-oriented man, and that's great. I've got this guy fooled. But uh, before Donald Trump was a politician, he had accusations back then. He was accused of rape before he was a politician. Yeah, I, I do think there's a, a different level of, uh, of of scrutiny that he's facing since being in politics. You disagree, I guess. Yes, because back then he was mixed in with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, and they're both, you know, I don't know other than what I read on the Internet, and they're both listed on Wikipedia, which, you know, if it was a big deal and I was a billionaire, I would sue him, tell him, you know, take it off of there. But for some reason, it's still there. What's, and this is way before he was a politician, so there's a lot. What's the guy has a lot going. What's the And uh, people should really be careful with him. All right. Well, uh, we, we, you've all been warned. Everybody be careful. Frank says so. 800-848-9222. Speaking of California, let's say hello to Alex in California. Hello there, Alex. Hi, Frank. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to... Uh, say that I agree with your commendation for the Taliban government. And I also wanted to add that the United States has frozen three and a half billion dollars of money that actually belongs to the Afghan people. And since the Taliban government represents the Afghan people, the United States should release it to the Taliban. No, no foreign powers imposing the Taliban on the, on the Afghans. That government exists because the Afghan people want that type of government. And, uh, and also, I want to say that for the actions of the American government that hurt the Afghan people by, for example, freezing these funds, the American people deserve collective punishment in the same way that the Palestinians deserve collective punishment for the actions of their Hamas government toward the Israeli people. Uh, yeah, Alex, I think that is such a dangerous view. And I'm sure you're aware. It sounds like you pay attention to Uh, world affairs pretty closely that was precisely bin laden's justification for carrying out attacks on innocent people in during september 11th he said that uh, it wasn't just the united states government that he took issue with for the terrible things that it was doing but it was the people that elected these leaders that made those decisions. I mean, I I think uh, it was wrong when bin Laden was using that as a justification to attack innocent people. And I think it's wrong to hold people, uh, you know, responsible for the actions of Hamas as well. Well, if, if you support a government as the American people supports their government and that government uh, commits uh, something that is grossly inappropriate, the American people are responsible. That part of bin Laden's statement, if uh, if you quoted him correctly, that part is logical and it makes sense. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think so, Alex. Right. I mean, look, I um, I vote for who I want to vote for. You vote for who you want to vote for. And if someone wins with a plurality 
that I didn't vote for, not even a majority, a plurality, as they had the last time there was an election in Gaza. And, you know, as is always, as usually the case in non-ranked choice voting elections in New York, if someone wins with a plurality and then they make poor decisions that hurt other people, I don't think that I, as an innocent person that tried to steer the ship of government in the correct manner, I don't think I should be murdered because someone I didn't vote for makes a decision that I didn't approve of. Do you? Well, then before you are punished for the actions of your government, you should use your uh, efforts to remove that government. If you know that your own government has committed a serious wrong, then you've got to remove it immediately. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying. I'm trying, Alex. And yet our government is still doing a lot of things that I don't like. I don't think that makes me a candidate for um, being blown up by a terrorist. And either more, any more than, first of all, in, in, in Gaza, they haven't even had elections in um, at least in almost a de- in uh, almost 20 years. So I think a lot of the people that are living there now didn't vote in that election. Hamas barely won the election back in, um, you know, in 2005 or 2006. And a lot of the half the people that live in Gaza were not even old enough to vote in that election. So I, I think to say, oh, screw all the Palestinians or, or if you don't. I mean, that's such a charged issue right now. What's going on in the Middle East with any group? I don't believe that you should be able to be held accountable. Innocent people should be able to be held accountable for the actions of their government. That goes for the Ukrainians. That goes for the Russians. That goes for Americans. That goes for the Israelis. That goes for uh, the Palestinians. I'm sorry. I I think that's such a a dangerous philosophy. I thought it was dangerous when Blondin said it. I think it's dangerous when Alex says it. 800-848-9222. Uh, the original Rick is in original Jersey. Hi, Rick. Hey, good morning, Frank. Good morning. morning. Uh, and happy uh, birthday to your son. Thank you. Um, by the way, it is on the 25th. Anyway. We'll agree to yeah, disagree. Oh, okay. All right. But um, about, I don't know if you remember, speaking of dementia, I uh, sent you a box of very expensive Death Wish coffee at one time. Yeah. Here's what happened. Um Christian, who was our producer at the time, was keeping it in his locker. And then he was planning to come back when he gave his notice. And they basically told him, no, that's okay. You don't have to come back. And he never was able to get the stuff that was in the locker, which did include the Death Wish coffee. Now, I don't know what became of the stuff that was in that locker, but I don't think I got to uh, I, I, I don't think I got to sample it. Right. Well, the reason I'm asking is because now uh, I'm, I'm aware of that you only drink one cup a week. What what brought that around? Because I, Frank, I have read over and over because you're worried about dementia. I've read over and over article after article. It staves off dementia well, two cups a day. I've as seen well that as, as well. colon cancer. Yeah, as well as colon I, cancer. I've seen that as well, and I'll probably go back there. Ultimately, it was um, two things. I mean, it was multiple uh, things, but it was it was two things. I had experimented with giving up coffee before. Uh, Carol Alt, she was very anti-coffee. And uh, Dr. Douglas Howard, who I would talk with a lot when um, when Balance of Nature was advertising on a show that I hosted, he would he kind of got me convinced of coffees, you know, that I shouldn't be doing it. But then I read the same kind of things that you do. And I made the decision that coffee was 
uh, still a net positive. But here's what the two things were. One, I would, you know, I work these odd hours and mm-hmm. I would get home and be unable to fall asleep because of yeah. all the coffee that I would be drinking all That's day true. and all evening. And I would be wide awake and then it would screw me up. It would screw me up. I finally would be able to fall asleep and then it would screw me up the next day. It would create this cycle. It's almost like how I used to hear about celebrities taking drugs to get up and then take drugs to go to sleep. And it would create this cycle of me not being able to sleep because I was drinking it at night. And then uh, the other thing was, um, and now since I don't drink it during the week, I go home and from the moment I set my head on the pillow, I am able to fall asleep almost immediately. Um, oh, that's good for you. The and, other and thing, they, you know, the other thing was uh, I was having a problem with uh, with heartburn and or acid reflux, not not heartburn mm-hmm. specifically, but um, acid reflux. And so what I did was I gave up everything that contributed to acid reflux, uh, at red sauce. Um, citrus, bourbon, um, anything that was a trigger for acid reflux, gradually, and, and it worked. It stopped immediately without any kind of medication or anything. And then gradually I've been restoring all of the things that um, that I removed. And I have, I, you know, again, some weeks maybe I'll do two cups, but those were the primary reasons is the need to be able to sleep when I go home and two, trying to avoid, you know, avoid acid reflux. Oh, and uh, the other thing was I went to give blood because I give blood regularly. And I gave blood and they found that I had high blood pressure. And, you know, again, I, I do eat cheese, which is not great for your blood pressure. But I, when I gave up caffeine or uh, coffee, basically gave it up. I still have a cup a week. I, they found that uh, that. I didn't have the high blood pressure. So I didn't have the acid reflux anymore. I didn't have any trouble sleeping anymore. And I didn't have any high blood pressure anymore. So, I mean, I think on the whole, I'm not anti-coffee. But for me, the way that I was using coffee, I don't think it turned out well for me. Matt, you're not a coffee guy, right? No, I I never drink coffee ever. I I can't stand it. I can't even stand the smell of it. See, I love the smell. I love the smell. And and I, I like the taste. I drink it black. I, I love it. That's a real treat for me on um, on Saturday or Sunday, sometimes both, to read the paper, sit on the porch, and uh, drink coffee. And, you know, we had Gary Korb from Cigar Advisor on this show. And before he mentioned this, I would never have thought about this, especially during the summer. There's something so great about sitting on the front porch, smoking a cigar, and enjoying a nice cup of coffee. There's just something about the way the cigar hits your palate and the coffee hits your palate. It's just a real, it's maybe even better than bourbon and a cigar, which I thought was the bee's knees. You're not a cigar guy either, right, Matt? No. No. Um, we are better off, better off without it. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
SMS text message here from a few people that said my remarks about Gary Korb were cut off a minute or two ago. If you're listening live, two things. One, you're not going to believe what I said. It was amazing. Really profound, really interesting, really different. The only way to hear the exciting conclusion of that really interesting Gary Korb anecdote is to listen to the podcast of this radio program. Uh, you can search the podcast at the other side of midnight, you know, on Shazam, iTunes, anywhere. Hit the subscribe button, especially if you're one of our listeners on KMOX in St. Louis, which only carries this show on Mondays. Congratulations, Missouri, celebrating your Mondays with Morano. But uh, you should be subscribing to this podcast on a daily basis. But if you want to hear the rest of that Gary Korb anecdote, Listen to the podcast. That's the way to do it. You can also go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and just search The Other Side of Midnight. You know, I um, found myself awake, you know, because of these odd hours at uh, in the middle of the night, I think on Friday, Saturday night into Sunday morning. And I ended up watching, I don't know how I never saw this before. I ended up watching the Clint Eastwood movie, The Mule. I am such a dweeb for Clint Eastwood. I am the biggest Clint Eastwood nerd there is. I don't know how I didn't see this. It's about five years old, and it was the first time that um, Clint Eastwood had directed himself on screen in years, and he's done a number of films since then that I have seen, which I've, I've loved. I love Clint Eastwood, and if you're a Clint Eastwood fan, it got mediocre reviews and mostly positive. It's worth seeing this if you're a Clint Eastwood fan, just because of the acting. Um, the story is relatively simple. It's totally predictable. But Clint Eastwood is great in it. So is Bradley Cooper. So is Lawrence Fishburne. So is Andy Garcia. So is Diane Weist. It is totally predictable, but it's a great film if you like Clint Eastwood. Like every Clint Eastwood movie, the music is so wonderful. The music is great. And the story, even though it's simple, it's actually based on a true story. It's about an old man, about an 88-year-old man that became a drug mule. And in, in many ways, it's kind of just your typical morality play. But 
You know, that's part of what I like about Clint Eastwood movies. You don't have to wonder what the ending means. It's very, very simple, very easy to understand. So I saw it on Netflix, um, streaming, obviously, not the DVD. It's called The Mule from 2018. I enjoyed it. If you're a Clint Eastwood fan, I think you'll like it, too. Until next hour, your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm superstar frank morano obviously i think a lot of us are just coming out of the thanksgiving holiday i was at my mother-in-law's for thanksgiving where i've been the last i don't know four or five years with the exception of two years ago when my son was born and yet there are still some people in my family that claim that's not his birthday but that's separate discussion so when i first started going to my mother-in-law's she did something that was never the case in any Thanksgiving that I ever had growing up. What she does is she prepares with the help of others, but it's mostly her. She prepares an adequate amount of food for all of the people that are attending. Never saw that before. I came from a tradition where if you were having eight or nine people for Thanksgiving dinner, there would be food for 30. No exaggeration. And it's, I guess, why my brothers-in-law all look the way they do and why I look the way I do. But, uh, I mean, I'm serious. My mom used to, she's still this way, but um, my dad is this way too. But my mom used to get so much more food than we were ever going to eat for Thanksgiving. There'd be five of us. She would get food for 25 people. It got to be such a thing that every year I would start, I started hosting a Black Friday party, which existed only to eat my Thanksgiving leftovers. And it became, that was almost like a New Year's Eve Eve party. And it, and it just became too much to do the Black Friday party so close to New Year's Eve. But it was it was fun. A lot of people that you would never get to see on Thanksgiving, they were all available on Black Friday and they would come and have leftovers. And it was great. It was a really fun time. But I've noticed that leftovers can be a very polarizing issue. And it's funny. I got two emails regarding leftovers. From previous listeners of the week, David in the Bronx and uh, Brandon in New Jersey both sent me separate emails about leftovers. My friend Vinny will not eat leftovers. There will Neither will his daughter. No leftovers ever. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people are like that. And it's one of the reasons that 
we are seeing food waste all over the country. And f- the biggest cause of food waste in this country, families. American families generated more than half of all the food waste produced in this country. More than farms, more than restaurants, more than manufacturing, more than retail. Families. Food waste is a massive climate and economic problem. And there are all sorts of tools to reduce waste that could save businesses money, that could feed more people, that could serve water and even lower greenhouse gas emissions. The vast majority, and we've talked about this before, I'm not going to go down this path right now, but the vast majority of that food is discarded because of confusion over expiration dates. But let's put aside the expiration date issue. I was listening to uh, a music program on the radio and the DJ was taught. This was the day after Thanksgiving. I was going to pick up something or the two days after Thanksgiving. I was going to pick up something for Carmine's party. And he was talking about how his daughter was making mashed potatoes on Thanksgiving Day. And she was peeling the potato skins from the mashed potatoes. And the daughter was going to throw away the potato skins. And the DJ said, uh, I would give him credit. I just, I don't know who I was listening to. It might have been Pat St. John. I don't remember. But the DJ said to the daughter, no, 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 no. Don't throw those potato skins away. I'll use them. So the next morning, he threw them in a frying pan with some eggs and some onions and said it was delicious. He had basically potato skins and onions and uh, maybe some peppers as well with eggs. And it sounded delicious. And Brandon, who wrote to me on this, said he's got all these leftover recipes that he uses. He said his favorite are scrambled eggs and stuffing as well as turkey and wild rice soup. Got me wondering what other recipes for leftovers people have. 800-848-9222. Then David sends me this article from Vice, which I found fascinating. Headline, eating strangers leftovers is fine. In fact, everyone should do it. Why let boring old social convention hold you back? Now, this is more about mostly restaurants, but I think it applies, you know, it's part of the broader leftover discussion. And this Vice article says, picture the scene. You're in a not particularly fancy Italian restaurant, and the people next to you get up from their table and walk out, leaving behind a few perfectly good slices of pizza. It's weird to grab the slice, right? But should it be? Hear me out. And this is uh, written by Becky Burgum. Surely, like me, you've been tempted before. Even if it was just that one time you were starving and an hour into waiting for your own food. But it seems that admitting this, or indeed actually doing it, is akin to social suicide. It can even get you dumped. Recently, a woman asked Parenting Forum um, if she should cut loose the man she's been seeing after he ate leftovers over off of some stranger's plates. Let the record state he took two pieces of cold toast, 
some sausages and proceeded to eat them with no plate. So they have a whole discussion about why it's okay to eat strangers' leftovers. I am curious where you come down on leftovers in general and if you have any special leftovers recipes and honestly, what can be done about the leftover situation, which is contributing to food waste. Now, on the one hand, you could do what my mother-in-law does. You could just make an adequate amount of food for all the people that are coming. Otherwise, you could, you know, we had Carmine's party on uh, Saturday and we don't really have enough room for all the leftovers we had. And some of it was stuff that we don't even eat. So I, um, you should see how excited my wife gets when people tell her they'll take food home. Oh, you'll take some of these paninis home? Great, let me get you a Ziploc bag. She's wrapping it up for them, giving it away. Oh, you'll take some cake home? She was so excited. Oh, I forgot to put out this uh, sliced chocolate babka. Bring this to work. And I've done that. We've got chocolate babka in the uh, kitchen now. When I will take something out of her house to distribute elsewhere, whether it's work. I mean, work is easy because people at a radio station, they'll eat anything. But she gets so excited giving away food And you know what I do, too, because it's nice to know it's not going to be thrown away. So I'd love to know where you come down on leftovers. 800-848-9222. Or if you have any leftover recipes. Are you a leftovers guy, Mr. Uh, Matt Place? 100%. I love leftovers. I was thinking, do you think your mother-in-law makes just enough because she had so many kids? Probably. And that's the reason? Yeah, I mean, probably. I mean, uh, just think about... um, you know, again, they had nine children in all, all very close in age. They're right. all about 14 months apart or so. And so, yeah, I mean, you're not going to be in the habit of having, uh, I mean, you, you go broke if you right. keep always making uh, more, more than what than people need. are going to need. So probably. Yeah, now, when you're there at Thanksgiving, do you know, like, okay, this is all I can eat and there's no seconds? No, there's no, no. Do no, you feel like, no, wait a minute, I want a little more. No, no, no. But it's just there you don't you're not hungry, but you definitely aren't pressured to take leftovers home. Right. That's that's definitely are it. there leftovers? Um I'm trying to remember. I don't know that there were, you know, maybe there was some leftover turkey. Right. Um, but definitely the sides. I didn't notice any leftovers. But there's there. no overabundance where you're having three, four, five more meals. No, definitely of, not. Out definitely of not the, uh, the Thanksgiving. No. Like where not, most people not, did. Not at all. Not that's at all. A, not for me, that's the best part. Me too. the leftovers. Me too. Yeah, I'm a leftovers guy. Um, 800-848-9222. Curious what you think. Rocco in Saratoga. Rocco, you uh, you have some leftover methodology? Uh, I wouldn't know, Frank. My mom never had leftovers. She would only serve fresh food. Anything leftover had to go home with someone else. Never ate leftover. And I kid you not, I never ate a leftover until I got married and we couldn't afford anything and used to make pasta every day. So... You know, the first year, it was a contadina, watered-down sauce, and pasta every day for a year, except when we went to mom's, and she loaded us up 
with all the food. Hey, take this home. Take that home. Uh, you say, Ma, that's enough. No, I really wanted it, but I, was, I didn't want her to think we didn't have any food at home. So I said, nah, Ma, we got enough. Nah, nah. You bring the meatballs, too. You bring this. Because we did not eat leftovers. There wasn't. She made so much food. The first time my wife came over, my wife said, my ex-wife, but she said, your mother didn't have to do all this cooking because I came. I said, what do you mean? We have this every day. But she <laughs> said she made a chicken. She made a roast beef. She made a baked ziti. She, I, I said, yeah. And I have six brothers and sisters and my dad. And then my mother would never sat. She said, but your mom doesn't sit. I said, I never realized that. You're right. She runs a restaurant in our kitchen, and that's her love. She doesn't care. My dad would say, hey, Connie. I feel like a steak of pizziola. Can you throw it in the sauce? No problem. My mom get a steak out of the fridge, throw it into the sauce. Okay. My brother didn't like what I was. I was the chief as far as mom would ask me every night. Hey, Rocco, what do you want to have for dinner? And I would say what I wanted to have. Not my dad. Whatever I decided, I was the oldest. That's what went. But then she'd make you whatever you wanted. If you didn't like what Rocco was going to eat. Said, All right. Oh. Well, thank you, Rocco. Again, I, I, you just eventually have to cut him off. Otherwise, he'll just keep going for four hours. Danielle in Brooklyn, I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Yeah, it was nice and quiet. Uh, but um, what I was going to say, I literally just heard the last bit of what you were saying about leftovers. Mm-hmm. And I just laughed to myself because I'm like, oh, my God, every time that I have leftovers and like I don't have any, like, you know, I'm tight on money and I, like, I need to eat something. You know you are a good cook when you can take a little bit of whatever you have left over in the fridge from that, like, week, from, like, you know, the last two, three, four days, and make yourself something, like, legit. Like, I made this, like, one sal- a salad one time. So give me, a, give me, a, and, give like, me your specialty. Oh, okay, so give me a, oh. what, what did you have and what did you create? What, from leftovers? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, that. that's way, like, <laughs> um... Latest was I made, I had some balsamic vinegar with uh, grilled chicken and uh, pita bread with, um, with salad. So I just made myself a, like a, a pita wrap salad like with that. And, and I thought I had some avocado left over. So yeah, I just, anything that, everything I, I eat is pretty much healthy and pretty much can go together. Except if I make a meal, like, oh, okay, yeah, I made this like rice and beans with uh, chicken and, um, I had some corn on the cob, so like I made, I made like made a meal out of that with some uh, pita bread on the side. Like, as long as like you eat the same kind of food, you'll basically be able to make anything into a meal of your leftovers. Yeah, no, I, I like it. So you're pro leftover. Yeah, because you never know when you're hungry. Like, if you just want that little bit of snack in the middle of the night, like leftovers are key for that. Yeah, no, well, I'm I'm with you on that one, Danielle. Thank you. You know, it's funny, my um, my Aunt Madeline, you know, she and my Uncle Joe are married for uh, almost 60 years. But my Aunt Madeline uh, came from a household where um, they always had leftovers. You know, she and my dad were, you know, two, two, right? So there was always leftovers, kind of like what I was saying with Matt Blaze. My Uncle Joe, he was, I think, one of six, maybe one of seven, maybe more, but around there. So in their household, they never had leftovers. So my Aunt Madeline, when they would get married, she would cook to intentionally have leftovers. Now, my Uncle Joe came from the tradition of you eat whatever's there. Otherwise, 
it, that's it. You're done. So I, I remember her describing a situation earlier in their marriage where uh, she would make, there would, you know, two people when they got married. So rather than make two pork chops, she would make three pork chops so that there would be one left over. So my Uncle Joe would eat two pork chops, even though he normally would only eat one. He would eat two. So then my Aunt Madeline starts making four pork chops. And then my Uncle Joe would eat three pork chops. And so not only did my Uncle Joe put on a fair amount of weight, but they had to have like a a come to Jesus moment that you don't have to eat everything that we're putting out there. And now I think they're in a uh, good place, at least leftover wise. 800-848-9222. David is in the boogie down Bronx. Hey, David, um, you mentioned when you emailed me that you're not about eating leftovers off of strangers' plates. I I realize it's a societal, uh, uh, you know, a social faux pas. How come, though? Should it be? I I actually like the idea of eating strangers' food. See, I figured you would. You're like a George. Oh, you know me. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't see many people being able to get past that taboo. Because if I were on a date and she reached across to the next table and started eating off of someone's plate who left, I mean, I would see that as a negative. I, I think that there's just something about eating off of a stranger's plate that's just considered unsavory. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm the type of person that I won't eat off of my mother's plate. So I, I just don't understand how people could do that. I mean, you'd have to be really hungry, and I've never been that hungry. <laughs> okay. Uh, what did you end up doing for, for Thanksgiving, David? I know you said you were ordering. Did you order a, a meal that included leftovers? No, I just ordered a, a Mexican, uh, you know, a couple of burritos and some stuff like that. The only thing I missed was pumpkin pie, which I'm getting delivered today. Oh, wonderful. So at least I'll, get, at least I'll have some pumpkin pie a little bit late. Well, you know my feelings on pie. Uh, all right, David, yeah. thank you. 800-848-9222. Pete, you have a leftover methodology? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm a turkey leg guy, so I always have my daughter or my wife make extra legs because we had an experience. Some relatives of my sister were walking back with the They came to the house for Thanksgiving when they were in the United States, and one grabbed one leg off the turkey, and the other, the husband and wife took the other leg. And I'm looking, I'm going, oh, my God, I'm a turkey leg guy. I love them. So we make extra legs. And sometimes I'll take the leg. I like it cold. I'll drive down Highland Boulevard eating the turkey leg, and everybody's staring at me when we get to the lights, you know. But uh, last Thursday before Thanksgiving, it was a parking lot on Staten Island. I hope you didn't experience it. Took me an hour and a half to get from Concord to uh, Manor Road. What a nightmare. I had to make three trips back because we forgot a prescription. But everybody, I want to wish you a belated happy Thanksgiving to all the WABC people, and especially to you, Frank Morano. And yeah to uh, all the people who work with you. Thank you. That's nice. You appreciate that, Pete. Hey, same to you. 800-848-9222. Fred is on Long Island. Hi, Fred. Hi. I wanted to talk about leftovers. I approve of them. I take them home from the diner all the time and Thanksgiving, too. I, I mean, I, I am with you on this. Why do you think some people have an aversion to leftovers, Fred? Um, 
I don't know, but I'm happy when they do because I get them. <laughs> I brought I brought home half a cherry pie, half an apple dumpling pie, uh, stuffing, turkey, and uh, it was my son's. I'm in my seventies. My son's friend through his first Thanksgiving, and we all ate there. And while we were doing that, he took the carcass from the turkey and made turkey soup, and I got a big container of that, too. God bless you, Fred. Do you have any special recipes that involve uh, leftovers, like Brandon had that uh, stuffing and, and eggs recipe? No, I don't, but I do have a recipe that I bring to uh Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas dinner. It's a cranberry jalapeno sauce. Oh, that sounds pretty interesting. Thank you, Fred. 800-848-9222. Roberts in Suffolk. Robert, where do you come down on leftovers? Hiya, Frank. Okay, first definition of leftovers is food that's prepared but was not served on someone's plate. That is leftover food. In other words, extra that was not eaten. Right. And what my mother would do, besides ha- us having turkey sandwiches, and we'd also have a couple of meals after Thanksgiving with all the sides and things, we would also, she would make a turkey soup, which was fantastic. And that would finish all the meat. And if this is homemade, fresh. Oh, yeah. No, I've heard that. That's a popular one. Yeah. Homemade turkey soup, man. Unreal. And that was... You boil the carcass, and whatever meat was left over went in with the fresh vegetables to make the soup and see with seasoning. I like it, Robert. Thank you. 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. I, my ex uh, did not like leftovers, and, I mean, she would eat them. She was not like my friend Vinny that would uh, just askew them. And so what she would say when I would say, oh, come on, this is great. We can have leftovers. And uh, she would say to me, uh, no, 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 I don't like the leftovers. They don't even sound good. They just sound leftovers. Ugh. If someone wanted them, then they wouldn't be left over. But I completely disagree. You got, I, I, you know, I think Matt Blaze said it. In a lot of respects, I actually kind of prefer the leftovers than when the food is new. So if you can mix and match and get creative like some of these guys are talking about, I think that's great. It's, but honestly, this problem with food waste that the country is facing is very real. Our landfills are being filled up with food that could be eaten. And it's a, a real shame. We've got a food waste crisis in this country. Frank is on Staten Island. Hello, Frank. Good morning, Frankie. How are you? I am uh, just... Uh, as splendid as a surprise three-day weekend. Well, <laughs> it's great to talk to you. Uh, I'm on the wor- way to work right now. I'm a bus driver out here on Staten Island. I got just pulling into my depot, and I'm hearing you talk about leftovers. I'm not even up out of bed 20 minutes, and I says, I got to call this guy Wonderful. right now. Growing up as an Italian-American from Brooklyn, you know, I did the national progression, came out to Staten Island, and uh, I'm out here, you know, doing my thing, and I always said to myself, you know, my father taught us to save everything. You know, we grew up, you know, I would say middle class, regular, you know, and you didn't like it. That was it. You, you left the table. If, if he made something or my mother made something, and you you only got one shot, you know, and uh, leftovers, we always ate them the next day. It was just, I actually love something. Who doesn't like, like, 
baked ziti warmed up. It's oh, great, you know? Can't beat that. It's, it's, yeah, it, it gets even better. So here when you talk about it and all these people out here, who doesn't eat leftovers? And, you know, now I, I'm grown. I got kids. And my kids became like, oh, Dad, we're not going to eat that again. We had it yesterday. They don't understand. And my wife's like, oh, you're too hard on them. But you don't understand. You need to know what it is to have nothing and starve to say no to So your, food, kids, you know? you, your so, kids don't like leftovers? No. Interesting. They, because my wife programmed them. My wife didn't grow up like I did. Well, you know, you know what I mean? And now it's, uh, it, it, it's just, you know, a different world today. These kids are all spoiled. They got their Starbucks, their computer, you know. Yeah, I, I wonder if that's ubiquitous across uh, everybody, your kids' generation. Thanks for sharing that, Frank. Appreciate it. All right, uh, we'll continue with your calls in a moment. Gnome Laden is off today, uh, so we're not going to check in with Gnome. But uh, I have a bunch of stories that I'll bring to your attention, and there's still plenty of us of time for us to chat as well. 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, just join our Facebook group. Just go online to Facebook and search Morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Um, I I think this is one of the few shows that has a, um, a Facebook group like this. Most people will limit their Facebook groups to only fans. Not me. I, uh, I, I don't mind people participating who are critical of the show as long as they're listening. We want everybody listening. And if it keeps you listening to uh, comment about what a terrible job I'm doing, great. Jump on board. And honestly, sometimes it leads to some very funny comments. All right. We're going to get back to your calls in a moment, but uh, there are a bunch of stories around the world that I want to bring to your attention. Obviously, part of the, you know, the, really the big news is the continuing story of this hostage release. You had 17 hostages held in the Gaza Strip that were released yesterday. This is the third group freed during what has been a very tenuous four-day ceasefire between Israel and Hamas that was held over the weekend and up to early this morning. 
In exchange, Israel released 39 Palestinian prisoners. The Qatar and U.S. mediated ceasefire began on Friday with Hamas agreeing to release at least 50 of around 240 hostages abducted during the October 7th attack in exchange for about 150 Palestinian prisoners. Majority are said to be primarily women and children on both sides. As of late yesterday, 43 hostages had been released by Hamas, while around 100 prisoners had been released by Israel. Among yesterday's group was at least one American, four-year-old Abigail Moore Eden, and reports suggest she was taken on October 7th, during which both her parents were killed. Ugh. Also released was nine-year-old Israeli-Irish citizen Emily Hand, who was previously believed to have been killed. In the If the ceasefire holds, U.S. officials say they may push for an extension. We'll see. We'll see. You know, there was an interesting article. I, I don't remember if it was in, might have been the Wall Street Journal, might have been the Times, about how distrustful everybody is of Qatar. But everybody's still dealing with Qatar because Qatar's got a lot of money. The U.S. and Western people are distrustful of Qatar because they are too cozy with Islamic fundamentalist regimes. I mean, they are an Islamic fundamentalist regime that doesn't respect human rights. The other Islamic fundamentalist regimes are untrusting of Qatar because Qatar is willing to deal with the United States and other Western countries. But Qatar's got the money to buy off everybody. So everybody still is dealing with them. That's why they've been able to be a broker here. It was an interesting article. Um, Also, the world's largest iceberg is drifting from the Antarctic Circle towards the Southern Ocean. Scientists confirmed late last week the floating mass sheared from the Filchner-Ron ice shelf in 1986 but became stuck on the floor of the Weddell Sea. Labeled A23A, the iceberg is roughly 1,500 square miles in size. Just to give you some perspective, that is five times, five times the land area of New York City. Wow. And about 1,300 feet thick. That's taller than the Empire State Building. Satellite imagery suggested the block had begun moving in 2020 before becoming fully adrift in recent months. As A23A melts, its effect on sea level increase will be minimal because floating objects display their own weight in displace their own weight in water with small differences due to the level of salinity. The researchers say it may threaten wildlife if it runs aground at the nearby island of South Georgia. We'll see. In India, efforts to rescue 41 trapped Indian workers inside a collapsed tunnel in northern, um, in this northern, I'm not going to insult the people of this Indian state by trying to pronounce it. This, um, it's entering, they're entering their third week today as rescuers mount three separate digging approaches to the enclosed laborers. All of the 41 men are reportedly in good health and receiving regular hot meals, water, and medicine via a small pipe. The collapse first occurred on November 12th amidst construction of the 
three-mile Silkiara Tunnel, one part of the government's highway project connecting four Hindu pilgrimage sites. Rescuers bored horizontally through a section of nearly 200 feet of fallen rock coming within 30 feet of the cavern before the drill hit metal girders and malfunctioned late last week. A superheated plasma cutter was airlifted to the region Sunday by the military to clear the broken machine and slower manual drilling was expected to resume. Two other teams are simultaneously digging from above and from the far side of the tunnel. Officials believe a breakthrough to the trapped men could occur within days. So, wishing everybody the best of luck. You know, India may be changing its name. Are you aware of that? They may be changing their name to Bharat. So, by convention... Um, the Indian Indian constitutional bodies have always mentioned the name India when the text is in English and the name Bharat when the text is in Hindi. But the invites to the G20 dinner back in September called Murmu the president of Bharat, President Drupati Murmu of India. They called him the president of Bharat. So people are speculating that they may move forward with an official... Name chip. So we'll see where that goes. All right. Uh, whatever you're doing today, I hope it is fulfilling, productive, and rewarding. At the very least, maybe restful. I'm looking forward to the, you know, the day. We're going to, um, we were supposed to go to a Christmas tree lighting in our neighborhood yesterday, but it got postponed due to weather. So that's going to happen uh, this evening, I believe, if all goes according to plan. You know what I've been dealing with? You know, we had three cats, and unfortunately, two of them died recently. And they, uh, my wife um, received our cat Bathsheba's remains, uh, the ashes, just over the weekend. They cremated Bathsheba on what would have been her birthday. So you can imagine the emotional toll that uh, that took on my wife. She was clearly very disappointed. I mean, disappointed is not the word. She was very broken up over uh, over that whole situation. But so we now have one cat left, our cat Prissy. Prissy will not let anyone other than Rachel near her. Only Rachel can pet her. Only Rachel can be in the same room with her. She's afraid of everybody else. Terrified of Carmine, terrified of me. Now, keep in mind, I've lived with her for years. Terrified of me. So what she does is she hangs out in our bedroom. So when I come in to take a nap or something or to go to sleep, she'll be in there, but she'll, when I walk into the room, she runs under the bed. Now, then I'll say, Prissy, go ahead, leave, leave, leave. But she's afraid to come out of the bed while I'm in there. So, all right, fine. I'll close the door because obviously regular people are going about their business during the day and I don't want to hear them. I'll close the door, and then Murphy's Law, Prissy will be scratching at the door to be let out. And then I'll get up, oh, oh, scary Frank, and uh, she will run back onto the bed. So, and it just continues. So I'm kind of struggling either way, because on the one hand, if I leave the door open, I hear all the people that are making noise in the house, 
On the other hand, if I close the door, then Prissy will scratch at the door to be let out. So every once in a while, she still does leave, but it's uh, it's quite a challenge, I must say. I mean, first world problems. One cat problems, I suppose. All right, 800-848-9222. I know a lot of you have been on hold. I'm going to get to everybody here. Uh, Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. What's on your mind, Charlie? Thank you, Frank. And by the way, I do like leftovers. I eat leftovers, too, so I, I agree with you on that. But that's not the reason why I call. I call because in the previous hour, you had two winners, two real uh, turds in the punch bowl calls that called right after each other. Frank and Alex, not not the Frank from Staten Island, just called about leftovers. But the, the other guy, he was uh, running Trump into the ground, criticizing Trump. And he mentioned the false allegation of the woman who wrongly falsely accused him of rape. That's been disproven that she's a liar. She talked about being raped in the dressing room of Bergdorf Goodman, a real you know, fancy high-end store. That She's been proven to be a nut job. So that, that's wrong. And he's telling people to watch out. Be careful. Well, I mean, it. again, I, I didn't view that allegation that credibly, but she, I, she did win that lawsuit, though. Well, no, but if she won the lawsuit, but he wasn't convicted of right. Or okay, sexual. gotcha. Understood. And okay, and the, and the second thing, the caller who was much more serious, Alex, who called up afterwards, and and you had read at the top of the hour the news about that. He's making the moral equivalency argument. He's falsely and wrongly accused uh, the Israeli Defense Forces of using collective punishment against uh, the Palestinians. Well, no, the poor Palestinian people, and well, many of whom support Hamas and voted for Hamas, so they're not all that innocent. They support Hamas, what Hamas is doing. But even the Palestinian civilians, the women and children who aren't involved in the necessary the daily acts of terrorism, they're being used as human shields by the Hamas. I mean, the Hamas people. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So when uh, children are killed, and unfortunately, it's it's terrible when it happens in war, but in every war that happens, it's called collateral damage. He knows that we had a lot of collateral damage in Vietnam. I mean, it happens in all wars. And to blame the Israelis and to hold them out for it as if they're intentionally or viciously or maliciously. Well, I don't think, again, I I don't want to, you know, uh, represent that guy's views, but I don't think he was blaming the Israelis. I think he was blaming the um, the Palestinians because Hamas is uh, is credible with them. I mean, it started about a a a discussion over the um, the Taliban in Afghanistan, but I don't think he was blaming the Israelis. But but again, I I think it I'm not going to repeat everything that I said last hour. I don't think it's right to blame the population, the civilian population for the actions of a government, as in the case of the United States or Afghanistan uh, or in the case of uh, Gaza with Hamas, but that's just me. 800-848-9222. Jeff is in Jersey City. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Frank. Uh, and you know what, too? Friendly fire is a big deal in war, no matter where you're, any war. But you know what? And relative to that, Frank, one, one of your topics that you talk about, and because you're an entertainer, and that's what you do, and that's why why we listen to you. Thank you. You entertain us, you make us feel better. And uh, that's a, that's really a talent that 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 you have. And you well, know that's more nice about you. than anyone. I I like the thing you did on Lincoln's um, son with the coincidence and all that. 
Um, but, um, and, oh, and there's another thing. Let me, and I know you're, you're tight on time. If I could just get to this quickly. Well, Rosalind Carter, I guess, rest in peace, right? Uh, today she'll be buried. Is that right? Who is that? Rosalind Carter. Oh, Rosalind Carter. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you uh, mentioned right? that. Yes. And, um, also, um, and you know what, too, Frank, uh, um, I, I don't like when people talk about, uh, MAGA Trump guy. I'm a, I'm a, a Trump supporter, but I'm, I'm not evil. I'm a, I'm just like you. I'm, um, I love my country. I love my neighbors and my family and my friends and you. And you know what? So a quick, uh, I'll leave you with this though on, on the presidents. And, and as I said, what you know, um, uh, Rosalind Carter, she died and they're praising her and president Nixon. Oh, you know what too? You did the JFK assassination and people were complaining. You talk too much. You, you don't talk too much about it because again, you're entertaining us. You make it interesting and it's still, you know, it's still not answered and maybe it's the friendly fire. It could be, um, but the thing I, I want to ask you, and I promise it's the last thing about President Nixon and his wife, um, because, and again, relative to Rosalind Carter, I think President Nixon's um, rating is, is, is going up possibly, especially when you consider the Israeli situation. But his wife, Frank, little people don't even know anything about her, Pat Nixon. And, you know, you know something about everything. So... Um, and I followed her career, man. She did amazing things. Um, she traveled all over the place. You knew Harvard Nixon. They were they were almost killed in in Venezuela, mm-hmm. right? In the in the, lim- in the limousine. That's right. That's and, right. You know, and, and um, so she she was and she was humble, man. You know, she and 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 the, the, the very last thing. I lived on Sixty Fifth Street. President Nixon was living there with his wife. And I went to the priest and I said, do you ever see, um, I knew President Nixon wasn't Catholic. I said, do you ever, do you ever see President Nixon? Maybe he just stops and just to, you know, say a prayer, light a candle. And she, he said, no, but I see his wife. She comes to mass and she wasn't a Catholic, you know, but, um, and you know what church was? St. Vincent Ferrer on Lexington and 65th Street. Um, but he said the wife comes in and says a prayer and he said very nice things about them. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, yeah, you, you, you're doing a hell of a job, Frank, and, uh, I'm going to miss you. I'm going away and, um, I'm going far, far away. Maybe I'll try to, do, are you going uh, to prison? Uh, well, I, I hope I don't end up there, but, uh, <laughs> well, but why, why can't you just still listen via the uh, website or something? You, you, yeah. You mean to, to connect with you guys? You mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, you could just listen wherever you are, anywhere in the world, on the app or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll try to. And these guys make phone calls from uh, from overseas, uh, right? Uh, I guess I'll have to discover um, how that'll go. Um, but um, anyway, um, keep up the good work, man. Uh, you really, uh, you're a gem. You're something special. And um, like I said, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'll miss you, but uh, you're a champ and you're in the kind of work. That uh, well, th- thank you, uh, Jeff. Appreciate that. Uh, R- Roy is in New Jersey. Hi, Roy. I thought I was ever going to have you stop talking. I was calling in about the uh, leftovers. I've right, been well, bringing them home over 40 something years now. My kids like it and my wife likes it. If somebody comes over, uh, we send them home with leftovers. There's always something good. Right? Absolutely, Roy. And now, one other thing I, I discovered. 
May 29th, 1984. You were born. You're 39 years old. I hope all the listeners know because you don't like telling your age, but I'll tell your age. You're 39 years old, Jack Benny. <laughs> hey, I do like Jack Benny. Uh, that is for sure. Joe is on Long Island. Hi, Joe. How you doing, Frank? Love the show, buddy. Thank you. I just wanted, you know, it's, it, I just love the hypocrisy of conflicts. You know, on one side, you got, uh, you know, the Jews or the Hebrew practicing people that never went to temple, that never did nothing. Now they're just gung-ho, you know, and wipe out Gaza. It doesn't matter about the civilians, nothing, just destroy it. That's them. And then you got the other side on social media with the whole LGBT TQ community that say they want to be Israel. They want to be Muslims now. But what they don't realize is, is the protest and the people that are talking this, they practice, they want Sharia. Now, if they want to go participate in Sharia, we all know the answers to what's going to happen to them. So it's just so funny. These people, they just go with the, the next best topic or the next best thing and never think things through. And it's just ridiculous, man. Well, a couple of things, Joe. One, I think, um, you know, it sounds, you know, the secular Jews who might be in support of Israel, there's a lot of reasons to um, want Israel to exist beyond just uh, being Jewish. And uh, again, I, I, we're, I'm up against a, a break here, but there's a case that um, Israel is the only real democracy in the Middle East so there's kind of a moral obligation there. It's also a, a potent ally in terms of many different aspects of national security of the United States. Now, you can agree with that. You can disagree with it. But there's not just a religious dimension to the um, Israeli conflict. There's uh, a political dimension. There's a, a legal dimension. I Your point on the um, end, by the way, your characterization of how what you said, or I forget the term you used, but uh, Jews or the Hebrews, whatever you said, that is not how most people feel about Gaza, even in Israel. In Israel, you don't have, you know, 100% of the people that want to bomb Gaza into oblivion or, a, a lim you know, turn into a parking lot. You don't. You don't. I mean, there are people that recognize that there are still 2.2 million people there. So I feel like you mischaracterize the both the motives and the statements on the Jewish side. I think you do make a good point that a lot of these people that are saying, uh, you know, pride for Palestinians and they're promoting LGBTQ causes, they'd be stoned in a uh, in a in an Islamic fundamentalist country. Lee Fong made a similar point when he was on with me right after the conflict. I think that's true, but I think you've oversimplified a very complicated issue. Uh, 15 seconds of fame straight ahead the other side of midnight it's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
Great Andy B. You know, he references aliens in this song. Uh, there actually might be some legislative movement on uh, UAP disclosure in Washington today. Apparently, you know, Schumer got some legislation passed through the Senate, I think unanimously. And now there's been some pushback from some of the Republicans in the House over what Schumer tried to do. And I expect uh, that there's going to be some news on that today. So I'll update on you on the, I'll update you on that tomorrow. Meantime, the other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Victor. Uh, when AOC was asked if she set her clocks back one hour for daylight savings time, she replied, hell no. I set them ahead 11 hours because I'm a progressive. <laughs> Jay. Hey, Frank. They got the bounce room over at the mental hospital. It's called the rubber room for big boys. Don't go there. Mike. Morning, Frank. Uh, glad you got through the weekend unscathed and sounding well-rested. A suggestion for Carmine, get him some Hot Wheels tracks. They're simple, no batteries, just gravity, and you'll have hours of fun. Nothing like those orange tracks. E. Frank. Yes, hi, superstar Francesco Morano. I want to ask you something. Do you think that um, Pope Francis I, Mario Borgoglio, former provincial leader of Buenos Aires, did a good thing by telling the diocese of Brooklyn to suspect. Rick. Good morning. How are you, Frank? Good morning. I just wanted to say to all the people out there, Frank Morano's 59 years old. No secrets kept anymore. Thank you. Jim. Pizza toppings and eggs or in a soup in a crock pot. Pizza toppings are leftover great food. All right. Thank you, Jim. All right. For anybody we didn't get to, we'll try and get to you first tomorrow. Frank Morano, good day. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.